Hello and welcome to the Saturday Down South Podcast, a very special edition of the Saturday Down South Podcast. It's It Just Meant More. I'm Connor O'Gara. He is Chris Marler. Today we are discussing 2001, number five Tennessee against number two Florida. Number what came four to Tennessee? Me, it's number five. I went back and looked it up. They had number five or they had number four on the broadcast. That's a little discrepancy. They Here would just take whatever ranking was higher. I went back and I looked it up because I saw that difference and I made sure that in the AP poll they were ranked number five. So they were they weren't technically number five what at were they, the time. At, were they at number four in the BCS? Yeah, number four in the okay. BCS or whatever it was. But we go by AP poll because the BCS is dead. This I game, just heard though. you say 2001, and I just honestly went into like rebellious teenager mode. So yep. I just wanted, I just wanted to argue. Yes. I don't freaking care, dude. I don't give a crap. <laughs> this game uh, for for you has a, probably a different, a little bit of a different memory than it does for me because I honestly, when when we were talking about games to do, this game did not ring a bell because if you don't grow up in the SEC and you're 11 years old, you don't consume this game. This game was yeah. almost 20 years ago now, which for some of you listening Jeez. is crazy to think about. But the circumstances surrounding it were incredible. I mean, yeah. absolutely incredible. We're going to get a d- dig into a lot of different stuff with this game, but just to sort of set the scene, if you know maybe you haven't watched this game yet or you just did, you need a little bit of context, whatever it is. By the way, I recommend everybody do that. Yeah. We we put the, the game out there before we record these podcasts so that you can go back and rewatch it yourself and then follow along with some of these great details and maybe hopefully we can provide some of the context that goes along with it. So... This game became famous for a variety of reasons, one of which was because it was Spurrier's last game in the Swamp. Spurrier, after this year, went to the Washington Redskins. It was after the bowl game, a move that, looking back on it, just seems so crazy and bizarre. And 20 years later, I don't think it would necessarily happen. I, no. I think that it's just really, really weird the way that all that went down, even looking back now. After they played a Ralph Friesian-led Maryland Terrapins in the Orange Bowl, yeah. a BCS Bowl, uh, he then decided that 12 years was too uh, was enough uh, at, at one school. That's what he said. He's like, I probably you know I've probably been here too long, and then went to Washington for two years. Yeah. Um, so this game, though, at the time, you don't know that it's Spurrier's last game. So that doesn't necessarily set the stage, or last game of the Swamp, I should say. This that, that in itself doesn't necessarily set the stage for all the drama of this game. This game was wild because 9-11, the attacks on our, on our country and the World Trade Towers, that postponed the week of games that was supposed to be the third Saturday in September when this game mm-hmm. is always played, of course. So this game, Tennessee, Florida, which everybody knows, it's September. That's just the way that it's always been done. So that, that used to be the first CBS game of the year. They didn't have they didn't have games the first two weeks. This was the first game of the year. It was the best. And this game instead is played on December first, and it's the regular season finale late in the year. And don't you know it? There is a division title at stake. It is essentially a playoff quarterfinal game. Even Vern said on the broadcast, you know, because L- Auburn and LSU were actually playing that night, right. so it was essentially a four-team SEC tournament, and this was like a quarterfinal playoff type game. And because Nebraska and o- Nebraska and Oklahoma had lost the week before, it opened the door for the national championship. So this the set of circumstances surrounding this game are very very atypical. It's so weird. Yeah. Well, and so and, and one thing I like cuz it's 2001 
and it did bring up a lot of, of of memories, and it was it was like fun memories. But then, like I'm not, I'm not saying this to be funny. I forgot how much I hated Tennessee and Philip Fulmer like growing up, and like and I'm just I'm not trying to like I, I know I'm like a, like an adult now, but I, I just I forgot like how much I hated that because team. they were good though, and it's yeah a they beat us every year. Of they they yeah. beat they beat Bama every single year. This is literally in the middle of losing seven straight to them. This was the last year they like, of the seven game series. I forgot how much I disliked Casey Clawson. Um, just just a lot of stuff, and it was but it was also fun because it's like I was invested in this game strictly because I was pulling for Florida. Because I just I, I didn't want to see. I tell you what, like as like a Bama fan growing up, the biggest nightmare for anything postseason, like an SEC championship game, is Tennessee and Auburn playing. It's like what in the hell? Like what? <laughs> Who do I cheer for? So it was it was interesting because of that, but it was also weird because like they they pushed the games back and they, like a lot of teams were playing, but it also was the same weekend like Army Navy. So that just kind of gets like kind of. You know, lost in the mix of oh, all. Oh, I didn't realize yeah. that. I saw it on the on the on the bottom line. I was like, that's kind of odd because like you would think they would, mm-hmm. especially in that year. I, I assume they would push that back. They didn't. Um, yeah, it was there was just a lot of weird circumstances going around it. Tennessee went three weeks in September without playing a football game. I mean, that's that's, that's crazy. What does every year to start the season. <laughs> Three actual weeks, though, of no football because of of 9-11 moving things back. They already had the bye week built into the middle of September. So just very strange, very strange season overall in the way that it ended in the regular season. Well, so this was one thing was uh, this was the first time since 1994, 1995 that Tennessee hadn't had a bye week before they played Florida. Great point. Great because point. they always took their bye week beforehand, and I think I think Florida did too. And, and I'm not. This is not a shot at Florida. This is just being factual. They always always did this, and they they haven't done it last year, I guess. But I feel like they still do most of the seasons. Is they open up with two just like absolute cupcakes and just demolish them in the swamp, and then they would go to play Tennessee. But Tennessee always had their their bye week, which I always thought was really bizarre because it's that's so early in. Kind of psyched them out, yeah. Well, no, but I mean, like, then you got to play nine straight games true. after that. True. So true. I think, uh, yeah, like that was that was I thought an interesting uh, little tidbit because it it was something that we've talked about this before in the past. Like, this was for somebody that, like like my team was not great at this this time period, and when these two teams played, it was must see TV. It was like I, I think I have it like in my notes. Like this is the twelfth year. This was Spurrier's twelfth year at Florida. All twelve years he was there. When they played Tennessee, they were both ranked in the top 15. Uh, nine of the 12 years, they were both ranked in the top 10, and like four times they were both in the top five. It, it was it was just an incredible rivalry. A tremendous rivalry, but still at the same time, Tennessee in this game is searching for its first win at the Swamp in 30 years. And yeah. Florida is is an 18-point favorite at home, which sounds crazy for a matchup yeah. of top five teams, but that's how much confidence there was with Florida. And we'll get to more of that later on and how that kind of shaped a lot of Florida fans' perception of this game and why it was such a deflating loss. Spoiler alert, Tennessee wins a thrilling, thrilling game that I, I think that even watching it back, you you really don't know throughout who's going to win this game because oh, Florida yeah, had did. well Florida had the twenty unanswered points in the, yeah. in the second quarter and it looks like Florida has got its feet under it and then Tennessee just keeps coming back and for Tennessee fans who have experienced so much pain in the twenty yeah. first century post national championship in nineteen ninety eight this is one of the seminal moments that they will look back on and always say like man that I'll always remember where I was that day and what that win meant for me yeah. 
I mean, let's just probably wearing overalls somewhere in like the Smoky Mountains. But <laughs> but no, but you speaking of that, like even before that, this was not like they had lost eight out of the last ten against against Florida. Right. Like it's, this was like I, I I remember watching this game, and, and obviously we'll get into it like more. But I remember like just the overall theme in my head or in my mind watching it was like again they they had beaten Tennessee eight out of ten years uh, in the past decade. They had won. Four of the last five by less than six points, but they always found a way to somehow win. It was and, and break their hearts doing it. So I loved watching this, and it just you, you just kind of kept thinking that was going to happen at some point. And it just didn't. Rare. Let's start with the cast, the directors here. Rare in this day and age in the SEC do we see two coaches who a have a national championship ring and b are facing off for the ninth time against each other. Spurrier yeah. versus Fulmer. Part nine. Spurrier had a seven to one advantage on Fulmer. The 1998 Tennessee team that won a Natty was the only other te- time that Fulmer actually beat Florida. He had never beaten him in, in the swamp or anything like that, obviously. And ironically enough, Fulmer was on the Tennessee team yeah. as a guard the last time that Tennessee won in the swamp in 1971. Right. Um, so the year before. This the year before this game is played. Let's start. Let's start with Fulmer real quick because there's a lot of Spurrier stuff that we can really dig into. They had declared September 9th in Knoxville, Philip Fulmer Day, and that was before the Florida game. Not maybe the the best idea because that's just material for Spurrier to yeah, kind of feed into. Yeah, at the into. time he was one and seven. An interesting move. I get it. Fulmer has won a national championship. All that. Interesting move to do it in in the middle of the season. Um, right. Fulmer was thirty five and two against the rest of the SEC East, but he was two and seven against Florida coming into this one. It was. I mean, it was like clockwork. It was like absolute clockwork. It happened every single year. It was. Amazing. I tell you what. One other thing that I thought was cool about like their backgrounds, you don't see now. Like I feel like this was like such an old school SEC thing you just see all the time. Both of these coaches played for this like their. Good point. Good so, point. And, and like you never, you never see that. And also, um, you know, this might just be uh, having PTSD from this past week as as a fan myself. Um, both coordinators had been there for over five years. The, the staffs, I know, right? It was and it was uh, Don the John or was it John the Don Chavis? Dan, Jan, the Dan Chavis. Um, they hit some great booth shots in this where he looks unrecognizable now without without that beard. I can't not see him. Uh, with anything but that beard. But yeah, John the Don Chavis was definitely in the house because he's had an SEC job for the last 50 years, right. it feels like. it's the, the thing about watching coaches face off with rings, I think is something that we just don't like. We see it sometimes, but I think now because of how few coaches, active coaches there are that actually have rings in recent memory, and you're not necessarily talking about a Mac Brown uh, as one of those type of guys, but like the Saban versus Jimbo matchups, the you know Jimbo versus Dabo matchups, we've seen that in the last couple of years, and now we're going to see it all the time in the West because you've got right. three coaches in the SEC West who have rings, including Coach O. But, but it's not it's, the same feel. It's it's kind of it's kind of not, and you know this is a, a great rivalry in a sense because Spurrier fed into it, 
And Spurrier played this, yeah. you know, he played the role of villain so well. And, you know, he loved to jab Tennessee whenever he could. Obviously, he used to always say you can't spell citrus without UT because the, the second place team in the SEC used to go to the Citrus Bowl. He was at the Gator Bowl this past year, and that clip went viral because he was getting announced for the all-Gator Bowl team. And he gets wildly booed because Tennessee is playing Indiana right. in this game. And Spurrier is only Spurrier could do decides in this moment he's gonna chomp. He's gonna do the Gator chomp because why? Why wouldn't he? I mean, that's yeah. that's who he is through and through. Well, and it's so weird too. And like I think this is I was I thought about this last night watching it and like this is different, especially for you if somebody didn't like grow up around it. But it was so kind of bizarre because every single year, like again, this was like clockwork. Like like Spurrier had won six SEC championships since they, they started the game like in 92 like this is like in a very short amount of time like he had dominated the sec and the sc east but this was something that whoever won this game was almost like a hundred percent going to win the conference they were definitely going to win the division yep but they were also most likely going to win the conference and you look at it like tennessee won in 97 98 that's that's two of the years that florida didn't i'm pretty sure florida won every other year besides that but that was decided the third week of the season the rest of the year, you're just kind of like, eh, I mean. Spurrier, to watch him on the sideline in this game, which no visor, by the way. I, yeah. I'm always a little bit weirded out now when I look back and, and I watch a Spurrier coach game without a visor. I'll have more on that subject a little bit later. But watching it through the lens of knowing that this is his last game and you see the, the strain on, on his face kind of throughout this, and you see it early on because when Tennessee jumps out to that early lead, it's almost like, a little bit of that wind is out of his sail, and Spurrier oh. kind of realizes he's in a he's in for an absolute dogfight. And this isn't going to be one of those days no. where he's talking about you know hanging half a hundred between the hedges or doing anything like that. I mean, this is a a different kind of ball game. His offense, though, twenty years later, nearly twenty years later, to look back on it, seeing all the modern principles of it, little Stupid. wrinkles. Oh, it's so fun to watch. He threw the ball fifty-one times. First off, one of the parts that, that was like fantastic like classic Spurrier was he was so pissed because of the inefficiency like the inefficiency of how Grossman was running the offense for most of the day and at one point he looked on the side he didn't have his visor he was just sitting like in or standing in this like weird plie legs crossed like in a way that I don't know how you physically are able to do that and he was just it was like a power stance but it was I don't even know how to describe it. I, ho I hope you guys go back and watch it because it was one of the most <laughs> awkward standing. Like, I like, couldn't have been comfortable. And you could just tell he was just so defeated. Like, what in the hell are y'all doing? <laughs> Spurrier, this game, though, it, it just, you can tell, it, it just means so much to him. And every, he lives and dies with with every single play. And, and watching his mannerisms on the sideline, I bet... If, if this game were played in 2020, we'd have even more shots of him on the sideline and getting his live reactions. Like we're watching, you know, to bring a modern context to this, we're watching Buzz Williams the other night coaching A&M right. against, against Kentucky basketball. And you're seeing Buzz Williams every two seconds because he freaks out and people get sick of watching him during a game and people vo voice their frustrations with that on Twitter. But he is such electric material for yeah, a camera same, person man. to be able to cover. And that's that's how Spurrier kind of always is. It's how he was with the Orlando Apollos when he was in the Alliance of American Football. Yeah, I mean, there's, there was one part where Fulmer did his, like, like just classic Fulmer moves, like both hands on, like, his player's shoulders. Like, now listen, man, like, look, you're, we're going to be fine. We're going to be fine, man. Like, just, like, you're going to shake it off. We're going to need you the rest of the 60 minutes. Spurrier did, like, the exact opposite. It was like, what the hell 
are you doing, Rex? Like he, he was, it couldn't have been, he was like peak disappointed parent. Just like get out of my face, go to your room, don't want to talk to you. Speaking of Rex, let's get into the A-listers. There are a ton of A-listers. I mean, a, a lot. There, there are guys that we're not even going to name because there was eight first-team All-SEC oh, selections it. combined in this. Five from Florida, three from Tennessee. I'm not even going to list Dante Stallworth, uh, Rache Caldwell, or Lito Shepard, these guys who, in my opinion, like had really, really good college careers, yeah. had really good NFL careers, but there are, I think, more interesting guys that we need to break down. And in my opinion, none more interesting than Sexy Rexy, Rex Grossman, who, Jesus. by the way, got that nickname from Spurrier himself. Of course he did. Of course he did. Grossman, runner-up for the Heisman, uh, was lost to Eric Crouch. Looking back on it, it's just nuts. Eric Crouch had one of the worst Heisman seasons ever, and I realized that he's playing for a Nebraska team that went to the national championship. Don't, no, don't. It's don't Nebraska. I, no, no, no. I'm saying for anybody that's going to defend him, because Rex Grossman should have won the Heisman this year. Like, there, there's Pro- no yeah, doubt probably. about it. I, it's like so. First off, Eric Crouch. That's the only team I've ever like. People like rag on like Bama or other teams that like sneak into like like a national championship or the playoff. Like if they didn't win their conference, or whatever. They lost by like thirty six points to an unranked Colorado team. That's their smacked. last game of the season, and then still went to the national championship, and I think lost by more. Um, against Miami, yeah. Yeah, like they were—they were not a fun. They were not like a great team to watch. Um, which obviously, like, there was so much on the line for for this game because of that. But yeah, he—he, I, he, I think he should have won. He probably should have won the Heisman. There were there were some other people on this. Like, I, I forgot how like Chris Leak. I thought he threw like the best ball out of any quarterback I've probably watched in the SEC in like the last fifteen years. It's just like a perfect spiral every time. I felt like that with with Grossman because it was like this effortless, just beautiful spirals. It was. Always pretty accurate, but it also was like there was like a, a not even a hint, like more than a hint of like laziness to it. Like oh yeah, it, it yes. was just not get like a minimal effort. It, like just for for as as long as I can get away with it, just like just kind of slinging it sidearm and, and throwing off his back foot constantly. Rex did this thing where I'm glad you brought up the back foot thing because as a Bears fan, I have PTSD of watching Rex Grossman throw off his back foot in the NFL way, way too much. And in college, he did this thing that's almost like Doug Flutie used to do where he would take this deep drop step with his back foot when he was trying to set his foot. And like he was almost stretching it as far as he could because he wanted to get as far back as possible because his arm angles sucked. I mean, Terrible. it absolutely sucked. Like his arm would just be so, so low, and you wonder how that guy was able to get his throw above the line of scrimmage so much. But he had this arm that was killer. And watching it back and seeing some of the throws that he made, like he made that oh, throw. That he made this throw to Caldwell. Oh my God! Jesus! Like one of the best college throws I, I have ever seen. That yeah. he just dropped in in a bucket for him. That's at not the that's pylon. not an exaggeration either. Like that was one of the <laughs> it was perfect. Like from one hash to the like to the other side of the field. It's especially like they were down fourteen, but just puts it perfectly on the outside shoulder. It was it was beautiful. I've been trying to figure out Rex Grossman for so so long because I know and it, it's probably useless and I think I've finally figured it out because we talk about the arm and he did all these great things, you know, he had the NCAA record for 55 touchdown passes through his sophomore year. I mean, probably should have left for the NFL after his redshirt sophomore year this this year. Right. Um and it's amazing to kind of think that he didn't. But I've been trying to figure out for so long why Rex Grossman got to the level that he was at with the mechanics that he had, which just were just really, really tough to watch looking back. And there are things that he was able to overcome, but he was this guy who, okay, 
everybody knows this person. This person that is, what's what's a nice 2020 way to say this? This person's a little chunk. I'm not Lazy but talented. Lazy but crazy talented. You just stick yeah. them out there and you watch what they're you able think to a do. Dad bod. Yeah, he he had a dad bod. I I would say, at any point of his college or NFL career, I could maybe me now I could maybe lift with Rex Grossman. I feel I, confident I don't know why about you that. Felt the need to bring that up. Uh, I had yeah, sure, because perspective. Maybe so I think I think he is definitely one of those guys that like, and I played with like a lot of people like this where. That if you if you don't have to lift or you don't have to run or you don't have to, like if, if you can still be as talented as he was and not have to put in a lot of effort like yeah you're just gonna do that you you just are and I I yeah. get so from that perspective I get it and he would have in the NFL you know the the big moment and the big like peak of his career was of course that 2006 season with the Bears where they went to the Super Bowl lost to the Colts still a little too soon to talk about that I remember this one day I mean everybody in Chicago knew there was good bad good Rex and bad Rex and it was mostly yeah. bad Rex but that defense was just at, at a different level they also had Devin Hester returning kicks and punts for touchdowns oh, every other go. play um so the back foot thing that we all knew and came to expect, there was this one day I remember so so specifically where my family and I, we took our family Christmas tree photo with snow on the outside. We're all wearing Bears jerseys. Everybody's all right. in on the Bears that year. And I remember thinking that day, just for the love of God, let Rex Grossman be just be average this day and maybe the Bears will win. Rex Grossman this day against the Vikings was six of nineteen for thirty-four yards with three interceptions, and the Bears won by double digits. And that they is Rex won Grossman. by double digits. They won by double digits. They won yeah. twenty-three to thirteen that day. There's a lot, there are a lot of flaws. Like he led the SEC in interceptions. Like he also led the SEC in in touchdowns. And he and he had. I mean, like this offense. Like it was it was it was kind of like maddening to watch because it was like, man, imagine if you actually tried. And I don't know Rex Grossman, so I, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't say that, but it was like, you know, he had so much talent around him. And this is also, I don't care how this sounds, this was like as much of like the like the last days of like the SEC recruiting of the Wild Wild West, where a lot of the guys, like for like, like, like some of like the, like the premier players in the, like not just in Florida or Tennessee, like in the entire conference, I don't know if they're getting into, to, you know, current day admission standards, uh, I'll, I'll just say it. Like I mean, they, they just, Rex was not I, a guy who went to class. That was no, uh, that was well, widely they, known. Yeah, there was a there was a book that came out um, called like uh, I think it was like a year in the SEC or like Welcome to the SEC, like a, like a year or two before this game, and they had anonymous quotes and stuff like that from every single coach. But you pretty much knew who the, each coach was, and it was just like openly talking about all the cheating that was going on at each place. It was crazy. Gosh. So the, he had a lot of talent around him, but that offense like. They put up over 400 yards passing a game. He went and, to the perfect place. He really did. Yeah, they had. They had. Uh, I mean, like, I mean, we'll talk about it in a second. But like, Rache Caldwell, Jabari, or Jabari Gaffney, like, they each had a thousand yards that year. Each had ten plus touchdowns. But like, having like, we always think of Spurrier offense being like probably the best or one of the best, like in the conference at least, if not the country. They were a top five scoring offense, top five total offense, also top five in defense, though. Yeah. Yeah, number six run defense in the country that year as well. And it makes sense now, looking back, of why Rex, who was, I mean, he was Mr. Football in the state of Indiana. He went to Bloomington South oh, High tough. School. Yeah. He went to uh, Indiana Is High School. Four other people? Indiana High School football is actually not as bad as you would think. There are some pretty solid prospects that have come out of, of the area. But he was he was a big deal at, at the time. And it kind of makes sense, like, looking back, of why he would want to go play with Spurrier. Because... 
Rex, a lot of Bears fans later would say, and this came out, I think, while he was in the NFL, there was this phrase that described Sexy Rexy, and it was, F it, I'm going deep. Every yeah, single time. And that was, I think, um, oh, who was it? The Susie Colbert website that came up with that and did like a blog post about it. Really, really funny to look back on. Uh, Rex Grossman, who also was nicknamed Sex Cannon. Um, oh, yeah. wow. That's so, a wow, fun wow. little tidbit. Goals, man. Good Rex. for him. We've got There's more. There's about him that oozes sex appeal, so I'm very uncomfortable with that. <laughs> We've got I mean, more Rex Grossman stuff a little bit yeah. later as well. Um, Alex Brown, speaking of uh, Gators who went to the Chicago Bears and had a little cup of coffee on that 2016. Is that why you wanted to do this game? No, no, no. I actually didn't realize is there was as much Bears talent. We're not even going to get to Ian Scott, who was also on the Bears on that 2016 as well. Um, Alex Brown, SEC Defensive Player of the Year, basically came back to college to be able to play for a national championship and had 13 sacks in 2001. was really good, rare three-time first-team All-SEC guy. First-team All-American. For two out of three years, and was a second-team All-American his junior year. Incredible I, college player, and looked really, really cut. Looking back, I was like, "Whoa!" Yeah, he was jacked. He, I mean, he, he had, was yoked. He had three blocked field goals this season in the 2001 Gosh. season. He blocked three field goals himself. Alex Brown had um, in this this game two years ago against Tennessee. He dominated. I mean, he had five sacks and an interception and a forced fumble, and he apparently he knew the calls. And yeah. he, he got tipped off of what the snap count was going to be. And so Tennessee coaches said, no matter what we do in this game, we need to make sure that Alex Brown doesn't know our snap right. count. And so, like, that was something – I mean, he was contained, relatively relatively speaking, in this game. But still, you know, a guy who had a great college career was uh, such a focal point to, for Tennessee to, to try and shut him down. I actually remember when he was having success with the Bears, I waited like two hours in line at a car dealership to be able to meet him. Super, super nice guy. I saw him like five years later when he was doing some stuff with like, I think it was Comcast Sportsnet in Chicago. And I waited and like, I was doing like a job shadow that day and got to talk with him a little bit then. Super, super nice dude. Not a bad thing to say about Alex Brown, but in this game, I thought relatively quiet. I mean, he had, he had, First off, that Tennessee offensive line was fantastic, and they they, they were also so good he this had thirteen game. like his his the the biggest like most mystifying thing for me with Alex Brown is because I remember he had the, the the game with five sacks the week before they played Bama ninety nine, and that's all they talked about like the entire broadcast and also Bama won, but it was pretty awesome. But um, I remember that because like that that's what he only had seven and a half the whole year like he that is what made him an All American was that yes game. yes exactly it, like you know it, it, it's one of those things too where it's like. It's like the David Pollock thing when he he had the strip sack for uh, South Carolina, and I I don't think that was I think that was like his sophomore year. Like that's like what like kind of like you know kind of burst onto the scene and like cemented his place and like especially with this rivalry. So yeah, the thirteen sacks his senior year. He this I I don't think out of all the times we've done this, I've never been more confused than I am right now. How in the hell did he g- slip to the fourth round of the NFL draft? It's, Did it's something baffling happen? because uh, I don't know because it, maybe he was considered a little bit undersized at the time and that's why he, he put on weight. Three-time All-American. I know, three-time All-American in the SEC. Meanwhile, Rex looks like he's never worked out a day in his life and is somehow a first-round quarterback with those arm angles. I don't know how that happens. But, um, yeah, that is that is kind of weird to look back on because yeah. somebody that accomplished, you would think he'd be, he'd be ready to go. Maybe there were some medical red flags or something like that. I don't know. Um, Jabbar Gaffney. The Florida receiver who was, I think, I think it's fair to call him the go-to target for Rex Grossman, yeah. like 
like Alex Brown. Or McCaffrey. Yeah, I mean, like uh, Alex Brown made a key play um, in in a, a, a win against Tennessee. They showed the replay of it. I didn't realize this, like like I said, not growing up in this, I didn't know that, that a game was decided on this. But It was a big deal. The, the game-winning touchdown catch with 14 seconds left to beat Tennessee in 2000. In no, Knoxville. In Knoxville. They called it a touchdown. And it, like watching the replay, there's just no way. I mean, there's it, it was an incomplete pass through and through. There was no replay to be able to overturn it. Spurrier himself said after the game, God smiled down on the Gators that day. He's he, right. He's right. He made the call like like he had money on the line because he like he's like it's a touchdown and then just like walked away from everyone. It was like it was terrible. So bad. So really? bad. I loved it. I loved every second of it because it was like it was a very gross rainy day in Knoxville. I remember watching that game. Um, yeah, Gaffney I thought was like they uh, they made all these comparisons to like the this you know this group of receivers like these three guys, uh, which is like was it Taylor Jackson was the other one. Uh, uh, Taylor Jacobs was the other one. Taylor Jacobs. Yeah. So, I mean, Caldwell and and Gaffney, that's, I mean, you look at, like, receiving duos in SC history, that's a top five, hands down. And and Grossman to Gaffney, that combination was one of the most prolific, I think, like, that's one of the most prolific, like, like, duos in SEC football history. And I'm I'm not just trying to say it because we watched this one game, but that entire season, it seems like, I was shocked he only had uh, 13 touchdowns. The the uh, the nickname was incredible too. They called him the oh, Reaper God. because I take they souls according to Jabbar Gaffney. Great, yeah, like great that line. Pre pregame interview that the, was uncomfortable. The pregame thing with our guy Tony Barnhart was actually it made the college game day thing. If you go back and watch this game on YouTube, they included some clips talking about this game, and that was one of the things that they they talked about. They had nicknames for all three of those guys, and they compared them to the '96 trio: I Killyard, Riedel Anthony, Jacquez Green. And that, the the amazing, they were what's that? Yeah, Just they were so clear. They were better. Yeah, they they ended up their legacy. I think is going to hold up a oh. little bit better. Um, weird to think that he actually was voted team MVP of this uh, of this great great team that had you know Grossman and, and Alex Brown, um, only Florida receiver to ever have multiple thousand yard receive that was receiving seasons. Not, not that surprising though because. We forget how much passing has changed. The amount of yeah. games in a season has changed a lot too. I mean, look at LSU. LSU played 15 games this past year. If you win a national championship, that's that's, that's the standard. Your receiver numbers are going to be elevated a bit. But yeah, that, Ron Zook is a head coach and Will Muschamp. So it's like, what are you going to do with that? Ron Zook. Oh, the Zucker. Um, Spurrier actually kicked Jabbar Gaffney off the team back in 1999. Yeah. Brought brought him back. Uh, kind of a guy who. Had a lot of trouble after after he retired in the NFL. Like he, I think people might forget this. This was a couple years ago. He was accused of pouring sugar yeah. in Lido Shepard's car, who is his cousin, was on this Florida team, was his teammate in the NFL. He and his girlfriend were accused of doing that. The charges were eventually dropped. But it's a nice bonding experience. It's a fun date night. Who does that to their cousin, or who even gets accused of doing that? I don't. Oh, know. I would definitely do it to my cousins. I, I think like this. I'm not. I'm not saying this is not like being judgmental of him. I'm just like this was a thing in the times, and I can I can tell like I can tell you several examples from from Bama even. Um, so it's not me trying to be biased. This was a time where like yeah, you didn't have to take the SAT, you didn't have to go to class, you didn't have to do it. like these were just like straight up like legit and like some of like the best athletes in the country and incredible incredible football players. And it was kind of like this, like lawless time. Like you didn't have to, you didn't have to do all these things you have to do now. He was awesome. He was very good. He was very, he was very awesome. good. And good in this game. Let's get to the, the Tennessee guys. 
the defensive tackles alone. Okay, hold on. First off, let me let me dive in here because um, I have I have a we didn't even say anything about Randy Shannon. What happened to Randy Shannon? Randy Shannon's the defensive coordinator for UCF. No, he was an offensive coordinator. He was the he was He's the, the defensive coordinator. no defensive coordinator for for UCF right now. No, Randy Randy Shannon. No, I'm saying Randy. Uh, yeah, no, his name's Randy Shannon. He's the offensive coordinator of Tennessee. Same name. Oh, we're talking about a different Randy Shannon. <coughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Now that makes this more sense. This one is a white. Um, so he he has a it's like from the Hangover. So he he basically um, he was like a pretty good offensive coordinator. I don't remember Tennessee necessarily like I don't know like leading the country in any stats, but they always had a a good offense. And he was the offensive coordinator forever at Tennessee. He was just like Chavis. Um, they so the other people uh, I I put him on the A list. You probably don't remember these people, but. Marquand Manuel ended up having a pretty like not a great NFL career, but he's he was like the defense coordinator for the Falcons, okay. uh, like two years ago. Like you said, Lido Shepard, uh, Kiwan Ratliff, Travis Carroll. He was one of my favorite players. He actually started at Bama and then transferred. He was a kid from the Bowles School, which was like IMG before IMG. Mm, okay, uh, that's where Chipper Jones went. So I'll hold off on, on all my other all my other players, but the Tennessee ones I thought were interesting because this game was like. There was there was besides Henderson and and Hainsworth like you you're gonna mention all the people that we thought were gonna be like the A listers especially in this game and they even mentioned on the broadcast ended up not having a huge impact on the game. Yes, Kelly Washington like and looking back on it, I remember Kelly Washington being like a big deal because he was one of those first guys that did like the winky thing where he had like a minor league baseball career, mm-hmm. then came in at like 23, um, you know, to play college football. And he was like 6'4", 220. He was like a big physical guy. But like looking back on his stats, he had a thousand yard receipt or thousand yard receiving, but he only had like two games over a hundred yards. Yeah. Um, he and Dante Stallworth, they kept bringing up on the broadcast. They're like, these guys are the key to the game. If they're going to be able to win this, it's going to depend on those guys. And those guys were really quiet in this game because yeah. – as we'll get to him in a minute here, Travis Stevens was really, really good. The defensive tackles, Albert Hainsworth, that's the big one. Did not get a lot of no, mention. No, Henderson in this was game. the big one. Yeah, Henderson. Henderson also. I mean, Henderson was was the better college player. Yeah. And and I mean, ultimately, you can make the argument that he was the better NFL player, though he was not as rich as Albert Hainsworth came to be. Hainsworth, All SEC second team uh, in two thousand one. He was just dominant against the run. That was his thing. Became, I, I think you you could argue he became more of an A-lister when he got to the NFL. And yeah, he had a $100 million contract. Unfortunately, that was the, one of the things that he was infamous for. He had the stomping incident with, with the Titans. Uh, that was a five-game suspension. He, which He did that like on campus at Tennessee. He like he flat out like dropped a, a just another student in a pickup uh, basketball game. Can't do that. Speaking of basketball games... This is the same guy who a couple years ago got kicked out of his son's basketball game. Oh, Why? Yeah. Because he got into Brittany a Jackson. fight with his son. So Albert Hainsworth, who actually right now with is, his son, yeah, got into a fight with his son. That story during went, the game. Went, oh man, before the game, before the game, game hadn't started memories. yet. No, no, game had not started yet, and they got into a fight in the hallway, and he he had to be taken out by security, all that stuff. We had that story on SDS, but it was. It was odd, and now we find out that he's actually in need of a kidney donor, and he's fighting for his life right now. Sports okay, Illustrated, Sports Illustrated wrote a great piece about him. But Albert Hainsworth is one of those guys that, like, you look back on, and you're like, oh wait, he. I mean, you, you question you question how somebody like him got to that level where he's getting a hundred million dollar contract. Let's just say that. I mean, he was a really good player. I, I him and John Henderson was one of the best defensive linemen I've I've watched in the SEC since I've been watching football. He, he was, was dominant. So this dominant. Game. He's so yeah. big. 
Um, he was there forever. Like he, he was one of those guys. He actually came back like specifically for this game. Yeah, won a national championship. Um, also famous for uh, when Tennessee was under uh, investigation uh, for for illegal ben- or impermissible benefits. He had four separate um, what is it uh, wireless or, or wire transfers from like a, a Western Union for fifty five hundred dollars a piece. Standard. Uh, nothing ever came of it, but that's neither here nor there. Just I, I would like to bring that up again. So him and Hainsworth, flat out, that's a cheat code in the it, middle. Not fair. Not fair it's to not. be able to have that. Yeah. And uh, you, can, you can see like the first drive of the game, like they, there's a third and one and it's just stuffed. Like I don't know who would want to try to like like run to the teeth of that. They, they didn't. Florida ultimately did not want to run in this game, part of which be because they didn't have Ernest Graham healthy. But Spurrier essentially said, you know what, that's that's why we're going to throw the ball 50 times with, with Grossman right. because we don't want to run at the teeth of this defense. John Henderson, even though they decided not to not to run the ball up the gut, he made his presence felt. I mean, he had two batted passes on Grossman's low yeah. arm angles, and there were a couple times where he just like – he destroyed Grossman. I mean, we're falling on him, the weight of what that looked like. Grossman had to just be seeing stars after the, after both of the hits that, that Henderson mean, put on him. He's like 6'7", three, 320 or something like that. Neck like, roll? This is like, I love the neck roll, too. Nice always had a neck roll. And this is like, you know, when who was the guy that used to play for the... Was it Gilbert Brown? Was that his name? The, the nose... The nose Huge for the like, Packers. Yeah, so like, that was, that was like more... I think like synonymous with like that position at, at that time. Like it was just like big, huge, like run stoppers, just like just trying to like plug the middle. Yep. John Henderson looked like he had like an ounce of fat on him. Yeah. Like, it was ridiculous. Uh, yeah. Also, yeah. Just side note: Rex Grossman should have had at least nine turnovers in this game. It yes. Um, the the low arm angles. I, I'm surprised that Henderson was the only one who. I mean, like I guess there were other guys in Tennessee that sort of took advantage of this, but it looked like if you just got a paw up, you were going to be able to block a Rex yeah. Grossman pass every single time. Um, Outland Trophy winner as the top interior lineman in 2000. So he was very, very well known. Big part of the broadcast as well. Actually had a pretty solid 10-year NFL career too. Yeah, he was um, really good. Made, made him some money in the NFL. Not Hainsworth money, but money nonetheless. The star of this game though, Travis Stevens. The Tennessee tailback who first first team All-SEC running back. Interesting story too because he actually took that a red cool. shirt. Yeah, took a red shirt in 1999. He wanted to wait behind Travis Henry, Jamal Lewis. Interesting off the field stuff. Well, he didn't want those to. Guys. Well, he he wanted to be able to get his time at Tennessee and instead of transferring. And right. ultimately said, "I'll take a red shirt in 1999." He was a fifth year senior when this game was played. Right. Dominated this game. I mean, yeah. absolutely dominated this game. 19 carries, 226 yards, two touchdowns. He just gashed. Florida. They wanted all no part. Day. They wanted no part of tackling him all day long. And he wasn't even like a super big back. But, but he ran was, through guys. They wanted no part of ta- like if, if he got through, because like, like Will Bar Will Bartholomew was their fullback that like. And, and I swear to God, I'm not just saying this. There was at least three hundred infros on this Tennessee team, and, and and two of them were on the offensive line. Like they, there was, I remember like it was. It, uh, I can't think of the name now. Fred Weary and then whoever the other, uh, Will Copeland, I think, was like the, the offensive lineman. And then Will Bartholomew. They would just open up these massive holes. And if he got through with like a full head of seam, I mean, he just, there was no, he was falling forward at least or probably just running right by you. He was so good in this game. And we'll, we'll dig into, he's he falls into another category that we'll discuss later on. Well, but you look at the workload that he had. And he had 19 oh, he carries in this game. In the first six games of 2001, he had 169 nice carries. That workload looked like 
if you just kind of break down the numbers. 28 carries a game. 28 carries a game that breaks down to, and you look at the way that he actually didn't get as much work towards the end of that year, and you're like, did he just kind of run out of gas? Is that why they sort of you know dialed it back? But this game, there was nothing about what he did that said he he ran out of gas. He just gashed Florida mm-hmm. left and right, inside, outside, did not matter. And the holes that he was being given, he got to the next level, and he would just blow people up. He was so Ooh. fun to watch in this game. And Tennessee also had the luxury, uh, and they still do every single season, of having that November schedule where they only play Kentucky and Vandy. Yep. And they used to play Memphis. Um, I, I, I look at the schedule. They played Notre Dame, which is like, oh, shout out to Tennessee for playing a good non-conference schedule like the middle of the season. They were 5-6 and six that year under Bob Davies. Mm. Um, but Stevens, so I thought the most interesting part of this was, one, the story in general is incredible. Like taking the red shirt. Like, you, you would never see this nowadays. Third year of his college career, and he takes right. a redshirt. That's it, weird. In his freshman year, he had, like, a very big – he had, like, 60 yards in the SEC championship game. He's a very big part of that game. Um, so he takes a backseat to them, and then he has – like, his dad passes away that that year like, right, while he's right. in the redshirt. It's like – so it's just, like, incredible, incredible story. But what was, like, more – I think, like, like what made it even better, and this is, like, the background stuff. I got my old Forrest Davis recruiting magazines out, of course. So – Two of the the the, the two thousand issue and the two thousand one issue, the the number one overall player in the Southeast, they were both featured in this game. Jabari Davis, Brock Berlin. Brock Berlin wasn't featured in the game, but they were both on the roster. Jabari right? Davis, Stone Mountain, Georgia. Stone Mountain from Tucker High School. So uh, yeah, they, they compared him to Earl Campbell and said he was as complete of a back as possible. He was like, it, the ultimate weapon. Um, so anyway, like the Tennessee again. I'm not accusing them of cheating, but they definitely did because we all did at this at this time in the SEC. Tennessee had the number one recruiting class in the country for two years in a row, 99 and 2000. And they signed several five-stars. But this year specifically, what makes the story so great, they signed three five-star running backs in this class alone. <laughs> three. <laughs> three in just this class. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just like it was... I, I the Travis Stevens thing. I always mix him up with Travis Henry, and I'm pretty sure there was another one too that was like a similar name. Like they had that was like the Cam with a K thing at Auburn. That was Travis. Everyone was just Travis uh, at Tennessee, but they had they they were a very very talented team. But I, I thought that was pretty special. That that was the one part of Tennessee that I didn't hate. Was, that was the Travis Stevens talk, story? Yeah, let me know when you want me to talk about Casey Clawson because I'll go off. Do you want to do you want to talk? I, so I Casey Clawson's weird because. It, he doesn't fit into an A-lister, in my opinion, just because at this at this no, point he doesn't, in his career, Connor, you're right. He doesn't, and he doesn't fit into the the breakout performer. He's not really a nope. prominent extra. He's kind of in this murky ground. So this isn't necessarily part of one of those he was categories. The most average. Go, go off about Casey Clawson. I hate I hated Casey Clawson so much. And one, I I I didn't like any of the Clawsons. I do feel bad for Rick having to be in the middle between Casey and Jimmy. I don't know how. So Casey Clawson was somehow a five-star quarterback. And and I always hated him because his first start was against Bama, and, of course, they won. Um, and he, like, like, I think he took the job from this kid named A.J. Suggs, who was from Keechern High School. He was also another huge recruit in the Southeast. So this kid, Casey Clawson's from California. And for whatever reason, Tennessee, like, raided California every single year. It never made sense to me because if you're, like, they had, I, I, think, I looked at it yesterday, they, like, they're, they're all-time recruits, like, the list of them. The state where they have the fourth most players on from their all-time recruits, California. Makes sense. No, it doesn't. It makes perfect sense. You, if you live in because California, why are you trying to go to route. Knoxville? Yeah, yeah, sure. Like, anyway, Philip Fulmer, I'm pretty sure has never been to California on purpose 
outside of recruiting. But they had this like pipe, like they had this pipeline of people coming in. Like they had Anthony Munoz or Michael Munoz, which was you know one of the greatest offensive linemen in NFL history. Anthony Munoz, his son. Um, I hated Casey Clawson from the get go, just absolutely from the get go. And then I told you the story. The week after this game, I went to SEC Fanfare, and I, like you know, we were playing like this three on three thing. And one of the kids on our team was this goofy looking kid with this spiked up gelled blonde hair and braces. I was waiting for you to bring that up. He was a big Jimmy Clawson. Clawson. I was like, this yeah. kid sucks. Like this is like he looked look just like Casey Clawson. Always had this weird, confused underbite look for whatever reason. I, it's everything about him bothered me, and it was mainly because he was so like inefficiently efficient if that makes sense i i actually really get that i really get that he, watching he this had like because i know like you talked to michael wayne brett and he, he brought up the fact that he was 14 and one on the road and he, he's like people they, somebody brought up casey clausen today uh on on sec this morning when i was listening to it like he's he's a known name like he's a household name i think and you know a lot of sec fans he couldn't have been more just average for like like i think he had nine interceptions this season six of them were against ranked teams it just, he, I, I hated everything about him. Everything. But he always made that one play. That one play that, you know, if you're looking at a make or break point of the game, he just, for whatever reason, was able to benefit from that. And it wasn't necessarily always. And the it was always over the middle. Play. It was always over the middle. And it was it's always true. on like third and 12. Yeah, because he was, he was undrafted coming out of college too, which Good, if you start yeah. that much, I mean, the arm strength was was clearly lacking, and he had weapons around him, but he was not. He was not he in this. Like you looked at him and Rex Grossman, you're like, all right, this is this is different. I can tell the talent is just at a different level with Rex Grossman, despite the fact that Casey Clawson physically was probably built a little bit better for the next level and to be able to to do yeah, some he's things. A five star. Yeah, I mean, but he at the same time, like it was clear that they were not going to put the game into his hands. He had two interceptions he, in this game too. He never. He never once, I'm sure I'm wrong about this, but I don't feel like it's that far from the truth. I don't think he ever once threw a spiral in his entire collegiate career. Maybe that's just a Tennessee thing, because Peyton Manning was not a spiral guy. Everybody knows that. Yeah, I, I just I don't even put them in the same, same breath. <laughs> it's just the worst. The, I only had one breakout performer in this game, and I don't even know if he really qualifies. Bobby Graham, the Tennessee receiver who, he's a junior. Yeah, me too. Okay, all right, that's, that, that's oh. fine. I mean, he was a junior. He, he doesn't fit the Alshon Jeffrey um, 2010 against Bama breakout performer Why type. Bring that up. Sorry, I had to. I had to because that's that's the primary example when I think of this category of a guy who just kind of bursts onto the scene and you say, oh, people around you here know how good he is. Jeffrey? No, on the broadcast of that game, they no. said people around South Carolina know how good this kid mm. is. This is the type of game that's going to make America know how good he is. There was only that, that really, really fit happened that, for Bobby Graham. He, right, this was he had like seven, but he did have seven catches for seventy one yards. And I think that was. Important because he he had he had like I think that doubled his uh it like it was more than double any amount of receptions he'd had in a single game all season and it was way more yards than he had in a single game all season um in which they needed it too because what's his, I mean like you said Stallworth which Stallworth, was Stallworth quiet. had a he had a really good year like statistically I think he had like a, like ten or eleven touchdowns too but um Stallworth and Kelly Washington and there's actually a point uh I'll bring it up to my coldest take but um. He, I mean, he had to step up, I think, because like they, yeah. they didn't have a single catch after like, you know, the ten minute mark of the third quarter. Yeah, Bobby Graham was the the passing offense for this team. He was the move that chains guys when they weren't getting some Ooh. sort of big play from Travis Stevens. Also, Robert Gillespie. Oh from, yes, uh, from Florida. He so he had like, I mean, he didn't run the ball very well because they didn't they didn't run want the ball to at all. 
But he had a uh, he had like 19 total touches and had 10 receptions, which was like a career high and uh, or a season high, and like 76 yards too, which is also a season high. Yeah, kind of kind of a breakout performer because of the you know not having Ernest Graham in this game and and how significant. You could argue it, it. It was it was significant for for Florida for the way that because they didn't they they weren't able to have any sort of balance at all. I'm not sure. Like we said, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if they were going to want to run at that dominant Tennessee defensive tackle duo. But at the same time, they were just so limited. Like there was one point where Florida was inside the five and they tried to run the ball with Gillespie and he just got smashed. And they said on the broadcast, I think it was Todd Blackledge said on the broadcast, yeah, that's kind of what he's not really good at. And then they just Yo, ran some like sort of back. Yeah, they just ran some sort of like bootleg with Grossman and he had a yeah. sink on the next play. It's like, ah, yeah, yeah this is what really was weird part of too about it like was just and we'll talk about like, during the actual gameplay, but this like I don't I I remember the name Ernest Graham. I don't know if he was like that dominant of a running back that it would have made a big difference cuz you looking at their offense Again, they average like 409 yards passing a game, and they average about 120 yards rushing too, but like their offense was through the air. So, like, I don't know if that would have made a huge difference, but I will say, um, like, the fact that, like, if if you're trying to, like, their offense looks so, like, night and day. Like, it was, like, every time they got to a third and one, Mm -hmm. like, I mean, um, pretty much every single play, like during Grossman's entire career, I just remember him. I don't remember if it was in shotgun or not, but just him dropping back, like you said, like it's eleven step drop, throwing off his back foot, and and finding you know probably Gaffney or Caldwell somewhere like you know wide open. But this was like anytime they got to third and one, it was like under center, like you know it was an I formation, it was like a single back, but they just would run up the gut. I was like, what do y'all do? Like this isn't Spurrier offense. Like what are y'all doing? Yeah, I don't know if that limited them at all, but um, I, I think it. I think it definitely kind of changed the way that Spurrier was going to call that game. At least tweaked it a little bit. The prominent extras there. There's only two, and they're both tight ends, in my opinion. Oh God, Ben Troop, the Florida tight end, it was quiet in his game. I put him in this category because he was an All American in 2003. He was a second round pick in 2004. Was quiet. I think he was only mentioned on the broadcast once or twice. Maybe, uh, yeah. and I think it was mostly for that. blocking. Yeah, this was not a game in which he really featured was featured prominently. But the the most obvious prominent extra is Jason Witten, number one. Jason Witten, which Adam Spencer pointed yeah, this you out. Didn't know that. Yeah, why why is the number so big? The fonts that Tennessee used they on did. those uniforms were terrible. It, it was it, awful. It didn't it like. Any, no matter what your last name was, it just had to take up a certain amount of space. So, like, Terry Fair was a cornerback there, and his his name was as – it was like a billboard. It was Why? ridiculous. I have no idea. And, and, like, the number one thing, I I didn't really think much of that because they had they had a lot of guys uh, that were right number one. I'm trying to think of the linebacker that was like – it's not Leonard Little. Um, was that the guy from Nebraska? Oh, no, you're going to test me on that one. Yeah, I don't know. So they had a number one as a linebacker who played uh, in the 98 season without Al Wilson, who was just like an absolute monster. Um, so I wasn't like that blown away by that, but he was awful in this game. He was awful. Jason Witten was the GOAT, and not the good kind of GOAT, the bad kind of GOAT in this game. And if you had asked me watching this game, who's going to be the guy that's actually still playing in the NFL of all these people in this game? Jason Witten is not the guy that I would have chosen because he had this fumble on the sideline oh where God. they threw him on the hash, like outside the hash twice. And they threw this play to him where it looks like he's kind of get, trying to get out of bounds a little bit. And Gus Scott just stripped it. And, and it was this huge, huge play at the time because 
They this, were yeah, I mean, they were up in this game. They had all sorts of momentum, and then it just totally took it away. And then they throw him another another play again in the flank, hits him in the shoulder pads. He tried to right. catch it in the shoulder pads, and it's 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 picked off by Florida. And the next on the very next play after that, Grossman threw a go-ahead TD pass, and then later he actually dropped another potential touchdown yeah. catch from Casey Clawson. Like Jason Witten was terrible in Awful. this game. Awful. He, he had all I remember from Jason Witten in college because I never thought he was going to be that good. Was he just had like this bright red rosacea cheeks who always seemed like he was nervous no matter how good he was and in his there was never like a run after the catch but Jason Witten I felt like I don't even know if like I didn't watch him enough in, in the pros but I feel like his run after the catch was like how I would go like attack like trying to go into like a, a like a movie theater row after like, the previews <laughs> have started like I'm just like very cautiously taking these like little baby steps like or, or like I'm like tiptoeing into the deep end of a pool. That's exactly how he's like. That's like, that's how he approached like a, a run after the catch. He was only he a was sophomore. Awful. He was only a sophomore at the time, and obviously he had much much better moments ahead. But I bet if you went back and asked Jason Witten, like, hey, worst moment of your entire football career? Uh, yeah, th- this had to be up there because he was just such a, a vastly vastly different player. And I had Tennessee fans when I tweeted out I tweeted out a picture of, of his jersey because it's so weird for me to look at him as number one. And people were like, "Yeah, Witten was historically bad that day. If Tennessee was going to lose, and if there was going to be somebody to blame afterwards, it would have been Jason Witten for sure." All right. Let's before we get to the story arc, we have a lot of different things that we're going to dig into. Let's quickly take a break and talk about the Saturday Down South po- Saturday Down South podcast. That's the name of what we do, right? Let's take a quick break. Are you subscribed yet to the Saturday Down South podcast? Because if you're not, you absolutely should be. Maybe you're one of those people that when you go for a long car ride or you go on a plane and you think, I'm just going to kind of pick and choose whatever podcast I want to listen to. And maybe you actually saw this episode of It Just Meant More and you thought to yourself, man, I should go download that. You know what you should also do while you're here is just subscribe because we're going to continue to provide all sorts of It Just Meant More games throughout the entire offseason and you don't want to miss any of them. And you actually don't want to miss any of our weekly podcasts as well. So if you are not already subscribed to the Saturday Down South podcast, make sure you just hit that little subscribe button right now. Give us a nice little five-star review on iTunes and um, Uncle Chris and Connor would greatly appreciate it. All right, let's get back to the podcast. Let's dig into the actual game itself. The favorite line from the broadcast, this being a Vern Lundquist game, always provides some sort of gems, but I feel like without Gary Danielson, there's not as many of those cringe-worthy lines. I, I didn't realize this, I had to look this up, that Gary Danielson actually didn't come to CBS until 2006. Oh yeah, this is the OG. This was, so I think, they, Jill Arrington on the sidelines? It was actually yeah. Michelle Tafoya before that, I think, right she was after. Todd Blackledge was on the call with Vern, so he kind of balances him out a little bit where I feel like Gary just sort of adds to Vern being Vern. Well, um, and they had Blackledge and Sean McDonough before Vern came on. Like Vern, I love Sean McDonough. Vern he's wasn't so good. even like, well, I mean, it, it, he's not, he was not as as fun as Vern, like in, in any way. Well, Vern's but, um, in, his, in a category by himself for, yeah. for fun, and you don't necessarily say that he's the greatest of all time in terms of the way that he breaks some of the things down, but you are entertained listening to Vern the entire time. And keep in mind, this is 20 years ago, so this is before you know we could really talk about about gambling and stuff. But this this was a line that stood out to me. So right after Tennessee goes up 14 to nothing in this game, 
Vern makes this reference to Tennessee being 18-point underdogs. I think they might have officially been 17.5, whatever it was. They were significant underdogs, three-score underdogs. And so Vern says on the broadcast, Phil Fulmer told us yesterday, my guys are kind of angry about that. Yeah. So when coaches say that they don't care about care about the spreads or anything like that, they all do. They all know the spreads. And when you're an 18-point underdog as a top-five team, word's going to get around a little bit. That that stood out to me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm never going to defend Tennessee, especially at this, this time in my life. And I, I, I want to go about like this entire episode like in the same mindset and voice as I was then. <laughs> and, and just I, I want to be like pure. Um, I mean, this is a team that barely beat Kentucky and gave up like 500 yards of offense to Kentucky two weeks prior. So, uh, I, I did think it was interesting that Florida was, cause we've seen stuff like this before. Um, it usually never works out for the, like the favorite like that. If you're that much of a favorite and it's a top five matchup, I think Bama was a 17 point favorite for the kick six. Um, also this season, even better example, both losses that Florida had like this, like in 2001, they were a three uh, a three score favorite because they were a twenty a twenty one or twenty point favorite uh, against Auburn on the road. The odds makers had to just be scratching their head as for what to do about Spurrier, and I bet some people made really really good money betting on Florida in those like early to mid nineties oh games where they where they couldn't figure out these high scoring offenses. Yeah, yet. the overs are probably like at forty, and they were doing <laughs> that like that. There was a stat they were saying because like. Again, they had the they had a top five scoring offense in the country. I think their scoring offense was second or third, and a top five scoring defense. So they were scoring an average of like forty three points or forty four points a game, and only giving up like thirteen. Like they they were a legit team, but they they would they would just come at you in like just like waves where they had a, a couple of slow starts at the season, like it's like South Carolina, and they would just pour it on like out out of nowhere, and and they would they would kill teams. And so I I think the the stuff with Spurrier, I think, like I'm sure he made a lot of people like a, a lot of money for this. They they had a stat that Rex Grossman had more yards passing on the season in the first half of games than Joey Harrington and Ken Dorsey had for the whole season. Joey Heisman, people forget they called that was him that. ridiculous. That was my least favorite comment. Yeah. Um, did you have a, a favorite line from the broadcast? Yeah. So um, I had two. The Affleck Duck apparently had just come out. <laughs> They love I, that. Dude, they flipped this, out with it that. It was like if you d- don't watch the game, just watch this one part because it, it, again, Vern isn't like a fan favorite yet. He's just being himself, and he. They come back and they're doing like the Affleck trivia question, and he could not have been more. I hate to say this word, but this is the best way to describe it. Tickled about this damn duck. Like it was. It was like though that. So the, the duck is like on the blimp, I guess, yeah. and he's like that. That squirrel can water ski. Like it's exactly what it was like. And then he just couldn't stop laughing at this stupid duck. Um, like and it was like a genuine laugh. So uh, that was that was fun. Think about it, a better time. We were all just so young and innocent. My favorite, my favorite quote uh, out of my spitefulness is: "56 seconds left in the game. Um, Tennessee's going to win. All my nightmares are coming true because they should probably beat LSU the next week. I think they were a 14 point favorite the next week or something like that." I think. But Tennessee ultimately lost next week to, <clears throat> yeah. to LSU, which we'll, we'll, we'll dig into more. more um, yeah. There's three Tennessee players on the sideline, and of course the one who's the loudest is the one that played the least in the game. Oh, and was, I know what you're saying. It was yeah. number 95. His name is Demetrian Veal. He yells, we smell the roses, baby. We smell the roses. And as soon as he said it, Vern Lundquist 
uh, just in the ultimate foreshadowing, said, sometimes you got to be careful with the live mics. <laughs> and Tennessee went on to lose to LSU the following week and did not play for a national championship. So that feeds into the next one, the coldest take from the broadcast. That in itself is a great cold take because yeah. it's in the last minute of this game. And that was sort of a theme of this game, and I talked about this with yeah, Doring later on. Yeah, not knowing what they're talking about. Well, just looking ahead to the Rose Bowl too much and, and mm-hmm. discounting the winner of the Auburn-LSU game. Coldest take from the broadcast actually, from for me, came from the college game day beforehand. I, yeah. Now, if you go back and you watch this on YouTube, like I said before, there's about eight or nine minutes of the best of college game day that they put into this at the start. Bless their heart, whoever put this all awesome. together. It's great. It is fantastic. Seriously, go back and watch all of it. Don't just skip through it. Herb Street is making his pick, and he says... This is not going to be a close game. Florida will win in a big, big way. Herbstreit is still looking really, really young in all of this, too. And Herbstreit, I feel like, doesn't come out and say stuff like that as much anymore because I am sure afterwards Tennessee fans let him have it. And I don't know. We've heard stuff like this before about players sitting in their hotel room and when they see all four people on college game day pick against them, they're like, all right, that's what fired us up. And then they bring it up in the postgame. I don't think that actually makes that big of a difference. But this was part of the feeling at the time of, holy crap, like Florida's going to win this game. Florida doesn't lose in the swamp. This is what they do. So, course, or uh, Hershey, I should say. Four games, their entire, like the entire. 11 uh, years before that. The, yeah, the 11 years under, under Spurrier. They lost four total games at home. Corso high-fived Herbstreet right after, and he puts on Albert, the alligator head, like all that stuff. Herbstreet's quote was actually <clears throat> right after our guy, Tony Barnhart, Mr. College Football. He did the piece about the three Florida receivers, and he gets a little bit fired up where the camera actually zooms in on him a little bit as he's about to make this pick. And I don't really see Tony get this fired up, except when he's about to make this pick. And maybe it's just the the electricity of the game or whatever it is. And he says, and Kirk, that's why the Gators get it done today. And they move on to the SEC Championship. And the place goes berserk. Because maybe Florida fans know, like, Tony's a Georgia guy. I mean, they, they probably yeah. know that bias. And to see him that fired up in that moment, to me, I thought that stood out. And that spoke to how much confidence Florida had going into this game. So just looking back on it, and I remember this season because it was it was they were so dominant the entire year. And we all again we always like think about these teams where, you know, under Spurrier where they were gonna win ten or eleven games. Like I mean he so he he won hundred and twenty two games in twelve years. It's pretty good. They were ranked for two hundred and three weeks of the two hundred and four total weeks he was a head coach of Florida, and the only week they weren't was the first week of, of the season, his first year. Like they, they were dominant. So the 18-point favorite thing, that may seem like a bit much, but just looking through their season, <clears throat> like, and again, Tennessee had just come off of giving up like 28 points to a Memphis team that wasn't very good. They they won by three against a very bad Kentucky team. There was questions about their defense, for sure. Yeah, they, they, and, you know, especially if, you, again, if you're going into, like, Vandy, in the beginning of the season, that first month, they they were a top three defense because when they played Georgia, they were the number three uh, total defense in the country. Mm-hmm. That was the hobnail boot game they lost. That, you yep. know, another huge day from Travis Stevens, but... Um, like their whole season, it was just kind of like, you know, nothing too, too overly impressive. It wasn't like they were dominating people like on offense or defense or anything like that. Florida, on the other hand, Florida lost to Auburn on a last second field goal. Uh, they beat number 15, Georgia by 14 points. Okay. 
They played one, two, three, four, five, six, six teams. They played five teams before Tennessee that were ranked. Okay. That Georgia game they won by 14. That was the closest game they had the entire season outside Destroyed of the people. Yep. They beat people to a pulp. I think the, the, the next closest was 29 points, and it was on the road in Death Valley against a ranked right. LSU team. So it was just, you know, I, I kind of get it. And I, and I think more than anything, 2001, especially the end of the season, was almost like this mini, like a, like a, a, a JV version of 2007. It wasn't as much chaos, but there was some chaos at the end of the year. Oh, yeah, it really was. I think, <clears throat> I think people really, really were hoping to see what they thought they were going to see with them winning and then winning the SEC championship and having a, a rematch from the Sugar Bowl the year before and playing that Miami team. It would have been even more playoff-type madness, though Miami was clearly, you know, in present time and in hindsight was far and away the best team in college football that year. I think the playoff system would have been would have been fun, and it would have added even more fuel to a game like this. So the Jadavion Clowney reminder that normal human beings don't play this sport. There's a couple different ways you can go with this. Yeah, I went with this. I went with Eddie Moore, who just delivered some thumping hits on in this Tennessee game. linebacker. Yeah, Tennessee linebacker, and one of them was on a blitz where he just. Just absolutely decked Grossman. And then there was another on this scramble oh where God. Grossman Grossman makes it, this unbelievable play to I get this yelling. throw off. And and he Grossman gets this throw off where he like throws it basically underhand. underhand. And like a submarine pitcher or something like that, as he's falling to the ground, and he somehow finds Kelvin Kite, who's like maybe five four yards. yards away. And he yeah, threw like it like a thousand away. miles an hour. Yeah. And then Kelvin Kite just gets rung by Eddie Moore. I mean, Eddie Moore just pummels him to where I, there's no doubt in my mind that's targeting in 2020. Oh, I mean, they would call well, that He was innocent. definitely concussed. Yeah. I, they I they said on the broadcast, they said two minutes after the play, they're like, he has a concussion. They, they knew immediately dude, like, right afterwards. I remember, I, I remember to this day, the comment my dad made while we were watching this game together when I was like 15, and he like was like smoking a cigar or something like that, and he gets up and like ashes it, and he goes... Yeah, Kelvin Kai don't know where he at right now. Yeah, and then just like walked outside. And I was like, huh? And it was like, <laughs> oh, you're right. Like that. That's that was the that was the same thing I had because there was there weren't that many, you know. Like I don't want to say there weren't any like spectacular plays, but there were there was stuff that we kind of expected to see or had seen. Yeah. Whole, like so the like I, I wrote down that, and then I said literally anything that John Henderson did. I mean, yeah, because he was he was just so dominant. But um, you know, like because like Gaffney and. And Caldwell, I'm, I'm probably misremembering this because they were obviously great receivers, but it's not something you see with like a, I don't know what's a good example. Like they, they weren't like these crazy, it wasn't like Hilliard. Like Hilliard had that famous play against Florida State in the Sugar Bowl where he like stopped on a dime, the guy runs mm-hmm. right past. Like they were good, but it was also they were in a really, really good system with like a, a good quarterback and a lot of talent around them. I think in present day we would have watched what those receivers did and said, "Yeah, that's that's our reminder that normal people don't right. play this game." But watching it now, we've seen the position developed so much, and we see so right. many systems that really allow that. So it didn't stand out necessarily in the same way. The Trent Richardson, I can't believe they didn't make it in the NFL. There is so many of these. There, there are a, a lot of potential ones. For oh, this. we didn't do the coldest take. We did do the coldest take. I did my coldest take. Do you want to go oh, back yeah. and do your coldest take? Yeah, I would. I'd like to participate in the show. Right. Um, I thought your coldest take was going to be what you had said before about the we're, we're smelling roses. No, they that had they a, that was just me being petty. But oh, okay. um, go ahead. My so mine was is like at the start of the second half, 
uh, they're coming back from from the break, whatever, and Blackledge is going over the game. And like I remember watching these when I was little, and it, it seemed very evident to me that like Vern Lundquist had no idea what was really going on, and Blackledge was the one that like knew the game. And so, because Vern, like even with Gary, he'd always be like, "Ha, that's that's a good point." <laughs> so Todd Blackledge says, "I don't think Tennessee can win this game unless they get Dante Stallworth and Kelly Washington to become factors at some point." Yep. Because so far they have Kelly Washington had zero uh, receptions in the first half. Stallworth had one. That that exact that same drive he said it on the first first series of the second half. They each caught one pass. I think Stallworth had like a like twenty something yard gain, and Washington had like a thirteen yard gain. Neither one of them caught a pass the entire rest of the game. They they ran the ball down Florida's throats and actually doubled their their rushing yards in the second half they had in the first half. And it was Didn't I guess the number six. Yeah, that's it. Just that was like the bread and butter. Casey Clawson was not going to be the reason that they, they won Jesus. that game necessarily. Um, okay, the Trent Richardson, I can't believe they didn't make it in the NFL. Speaking of that, for me, the most obvious one here is Travis Stevens. And you watch the way that he runs in this game, and you see him getting to the next level. I mean, just just shedding tacklers in yeah. ways that it was notice, it's noticeable now, it was noticeable then. Running up the middle, inside, outside, whatever. yards. Really good year. I mean, unquestionably all SEC first teamer, no doubt about it. He was a fourth round pick in 2002 after his fifth fifth year at Tennessee. And all he did in the NFL was have one catch in his first game for six yards, and that's it. So I'm glad you looked up the actual stats because that's that's one of the people I had listed to. And that was like it was it was honestly it was kind of sad because it was it was like yeah, he had one reception in his first game. Didn't have a rushing attempt in the NFL. Ever. Which is amazing watching back in this game because you think you could just build an offense around yeah. that guy. Well, and he, got, he, was doing. he got cut like in t- at the end of that season after his rookie season. Yeah, cut and as a didn't, fourth round pick. I don't think he got picked up by anybody. Until 2004. For, and right. then, yeah, tried to, so, tried to make it and just couldn't do anything. You wonder, and this was something that we, I don't want to say that we weren't aware of, but we didn't necessarily cater to it as much in that time was just one of those guys who hit his limit. As a running back, we always yeah. talk about that. You have your limit. There is a number of hits that you can take as a running back. As they always say, it's like getting into a car crash 25 times a game. And if he hit his limit, and that was just it, because I didn't really find anything as to what necessarily resulted in him not being that guy. And if maybe the workload that he got at Tennessee at the start had something to do with that, because it was so, insane what he was I'll getting. I'll just tell you what the, uh, the general consensus was around my household and most other uh, dumb SEC fans from the time was that there were uh, either witch and or Indian doctors uh, oh. on Tennessee staff. Because Tennessee was like, it was kind of odd. Like, they would be notorious where they, these people would get in these, it'd be like the Kelvin Kite hit. Like, these, like, terrible-looking hits that they're down on the ground. Like, it's like a stoppage of play. They had to go to the locker room. And then, like, two or three minutes later, they would just come sprinting out of the locker room. Um, I'm mainly kidding. I don't think that's why he had a bad NFL career. But you never know. Witch doctors, man. That was a big thing that was in play in the late 90s in SEC football. Why hasn't Tennessee been able to win since then? They don't have any more witch doctors. Exactly. Can't find them. They're few Um, and far between. So I had, like, they didn't really necessarily have, like, great college careers. But Tennessee was so loaded with with recruits. Like, like looking back on it yesterday, like, um, I wrote down Michael Munoz, of course. Jason Respert. These are all guys that are in the top ten of their all-time recruits. Jabari Davis, like the sixth overall recruit. 
I forgot Jason Respert, why he didn't pan out, and that's because he was, like, the top offensive lineman in the country, and he like, sexually assaulted someone on his official visit. Oh. And was facing up to 30 years in prison for doing it, and Tennessee still signed him on hey. signing day uh, before that was uh, that was that was settled. I don't know if he ever played, but, but Michael Munoz was weird because I think he's a guy that had a lot of injuries, but that that's an offensive lineman that had, in this same class, Tennessee had three five-star offensive linemen the year before they had three five-star running backs. And Munoz was like, obviously good pedigree because his dad was probably the best offensive lineman in NFL history. Yeah. Um, and, you know, had the size. He was an All-American coming out of high school. Ended up being an All-American his senior year at Tennessee and didn't get drafted. That's so weird. But the, it is was so there, like, weird. The draft, was the draft like the way like, draft was Major on. League Baseball draft was in like the 50s? Like, was it... Was that how the NFL draft was like in like twenty years ago? I just don't remember it. I maybe I, there are, there are some decisions looking back on that. Yes, we have the benefit of, of seeing what these guys ultimately turned into, but there are still just some things I just for the life of me cannot understand. And I there there are there are guys who who pan out that you're just like wow, like that did not see that coming at all. But right. you know, Jason Witten being one of them. I mean, that was a guy who who actually panned out, and you wouldn't look at anything he did this game and think that he was capable of being that guy. Did you have any others for the can't believe they didn't make in the NFL? Any on, any no, on just, Florida side? So not really because – They had a lot like, of guys making the NFL. Yeah, I, I looked at him, and I was like, oh, yeah, that, I remember – like Rache Caldwell would probably be the closest. And he had, he had, he had, he had a nice like, double-digit touchdowns. Like he played for like, a, like six, seven years. But, yeah, I mean, Alex, Alex – uh, what, what, Alex Brown, that like I, I, I still like I, I'm still confused right now in this present moment how Why he got drafted in the fourth round. That makes no yeah. sense. But for the most part, it was uh, I mean maybe Brock Berlin because that was a Brock Berlin had a weird story like almost like a Mitch Mustaine, Blake Barnett type thing where he was he was the consensus top player in the entire country from Shreveport by the way. There you go. Um, ended up going to Florida and then transferred to Miami because uh, he just wasn't getting a lot of playing time, but he. He was, I mean, that that was a guy that was like a absolute cannot miss. Who was who was the guy from Michigan around the same time? Not Chad Henney, uh Drew Henson. Drew Henson, baseball player, yeah. Yeah, it was it was like that where it's like this is like whatever he decides like to you know get put it all together. He's he's going to be like a can't miss prospect, and he just never really did anything. The this this category I decided to veer off in a different direction because, like I said. I, I was 11 at the time and lived in, in the suburbs of Chicago. I wasn't watching this game. So the thing, this is usually, and we'll do this for you, the thing that you didn't know slash remember until re-watching this game was what? I'm just going to be honest. Um, it's that I, how, I forgot how much I hated Tennessee and, and Philip Fulmer. I just like, and, <laughs> and like, let me explain this because like, and I, I'm saying it somewhat in jest, but like the 2001 season is right on the heels of when like Bama's program was the worst and they got put on probation because Philip Fulmer was a secret witness for the NCAA's investigation. This is all real. So I just hated Philip Fulmer just cause, and they beat us every year. Like they were just, they were such a good team, man. Um, so I, I just, I would get so frustrated because like watching Tennessee, it wasn't like watching Florida where they were dominating teams. It was just like, again, inefficiently efficient they were always going to be like a, a good defensive, you know, a, a strong defensive team, and they were really well coached with Fulmer. I just hated Fulmer. That's that's one of those things that for you is is just that that's never going to to necessarily change. Like you, you, oh no, this watching this will I I imagine always bring up these memories of just like 
selfishly, you're going to think back to this game that Alabama lost, this game that Alabama lost. For that me, stupid little smirk that he has, like whatever, like like. He's a, it, I, he, uh, it's like the definition of like a blank eating grin. I just I couldn't I couldn't stand him. I just he was. It's almost like I, when when you let go of a fart in public and you're like, yeah, somebody's gonna smell that a little it. bit, and I got yeah. away with it. You only yeah. like tell your friend, but you don't want to say it out loud. Yeah, that's exactly what it looks like. I, I will say also to be fair, Philip Plummer, it, I still to this day have no idea why they ever fired him, and the, the success he had at Tennessee was incredible. He, he's he's a top. I don't want to say all time Tennessee, but he's a top ten coach easily in, in the last. You know, generation. He's a generational coach. He'd have an argument to be a top ten SEC coach of all time with the national championship. I think he definitely has has the argument. And to last to last at a big time program that long is not an easy thing at all. One hundred fifty two wins and fifty two losses. That's That's pretty good. That is pretty good. Um, So because I don't have memories of watching this game, I decided to talk to people who do have memories watching this game. Now I talked to um, I talked to Doring. I had a 15 minute conversation with him this morning um, while he was I think he was driving to work or something like that. He's got conferences all day. But Doring obviously wasn't playing in this game, but he was actually back in Gainesville and he was rehabbing because he had a torn Achilles. He had torn his Achilles the previous year. He was kind of in between NFL gigs, so he was at the swamp for this game. And he actually, because he had a little bit of a side hustle with a a travel business as well, he had been talking with a bunch of people about Rose Bowl plants. And that was part of the the cold take thing because I think it was one of the first years, maybe it was the first year where the SEC had a chance to go to the Rose Bowl. And that was a huge, huge deal at the time. And so he's talking to all these people at the game about, you know, potential travel plans and he's looking to make a little bit of money on the side. One of the things that he told me that he, he remembers is that Tennessee fans coming into this had always said, and Michael Bratton echoed this as well, Tennessee fans always say, oh, you know, Florida, if we played you later in the year, we would always be able to, we'd, we'd right. be able to beat you more often. And so, you know, Florida fans kind of laugh at that. They're like, all right, whatever. And, of course, they play this game in December, and Tennessee wins this game. And yeah. so it kind of has only added fuel to the argument because Tennessee has struggled immensely since then, and they continue to play this game on the third Saturday of September. I, yeah, you know, you know, honestly, and, like, I'll, I'll defend Tennessee here for a minute. <clears throat> One thing I did forget about was I forgot how arrogant this Florida team was. And, and they like, were confident. They were they were arrogant. Like they just like the, the way they carried themselves, the way they played, everything about it just seemed like there was never like any kind of um like there, there, there was never what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, humility. Like, well yeah that for sure. But I mean they just like and I get why because they were the they were arguably the most successful program in the country. Yeah when you're time. putting up points I think it just kind of it's different and you feel right. like you're ahead you're ahead of the curve <clears throat> and you're you're doing these new things that people haven't seen before. I get why that that yeah. confidence that swagger was there. It makes sense. I, I but I will say that uh the way that's set up I mean yeah like you, you have to wonder because because it, it does kind of seem unfair. It's like man why are we like why was this game, which is the biggest, that's the most important game in the entire conference for o- over half a decade in in the in the late '90s, and it was decided like that whole division was decided before October started. It just it's, it's just weird. The Georgia, the Florida, Georgia, no. Georgia, Florida no. game Georgia, also Florida is, never, maybe never, not up to that point, not up to that point, and didn't have the same sort of impact. But since then, it has been the oh, pivotal yeah. game in, in the East, obviously, <clears> but. That's that's such a, an interesting question of why not move this game to later on and why hasn't why haven't you heard maybe more from Tennessee to say let's let's do what we can to be able to to move this game later in the schedule because 
it makes sense from from their standpoint also of like wanting to just just show hey this is the best version of ourselves they have such a favorable schedule at the end of the year with vandy and kentucky and florida fans would always say well that's why you think you're getting so much better is because these are the teams that you're playing and you've said that before too like it's it's a fair point to bring up but tennessee was healthier in this game as a result if they had played earlier on i think there were like four key like four starters who would not have been able to play if this game was played in september as opposed to being played in the first weekend of december so yeah well and also like Todd Blackledge brought it up, like them not having a week off beforehand. Like Philip Fulmer was was a kind of coach that he took things very personally as a coach because he he loved Tennessee. I mean, obviously, still does, but he like it meant a lot to him to be the coach there, kind of like the Coach O thing. Um, Maybe not overthinking it gave him like some more confidence, but because that game plan they had, I I'd never seen that before in any of these matchups. But yeah, that that is that is something though. I I forgot how cocky uh, how how arrogant Florida was. Doring had some great other nuggets about this. Um, I asked him about Spurrier because he is very, very tight with, with Spurrier, always has been, always will be. He didn't know anything about him going to the Redskins, even after the Orange Bowl. Um, I don't think he did. Yeah, like, I, I, I questioned kind of how all of that went down. He's, you know, Rex was coming back the next year after his redshirt sophomore year. Um, Spurrier had told Doring while they were golfing at times, like, yeah, you know, he's curious to see how his offense would translate to the NFL. There was a little bit of that curiosity there. And you got to remember, this was a different time because NFL money was different than that college money. Yeah. I, I went back and looked this up. At the time with Washington, the deal that Spurrier signed was a record-setting deal for an NFL coach. It was five mm-hmm. years, $25 million. At Florida in 1997, Spurrier signed a deal that was six years, $11.8 million. That's, That's less than that $2 million bucks a year. That's like two and a half times the money. I mean, that, that, is, that is way, way different. So looking back, you know... Doring was saying how losing this game might have expedited this whole thing, but there was always that curiosity factor when there was the money that was attractive to somebody like Spurrier. Yeah, I mean, it kind of it kind of makes sense because he was somebody who thought that he could succeed no matter where he was. He's the most confident person that that yeah. Doring has ever met. So I get that. the The issue that that Spurrier had at Florida and this carried into his time at the NFL was that. The happiness of wins never matched the low of losing, and the the, the stuff that he would get from fans, and you know, yeah, you didn't win this game, you didn't do this. That's sort of just continued in the NFL because even in the NFL, if you're a good coach, you're ten and six, and you're still losing those games in a year, and it just hit Spurrier so, in a different way. And this is something I, I brought up like last year and caught a lot of flack for. But remember, Florida as a program, they had some they had some good years in the '80s. They had like three good years in the '80s. Outside of that, they I think those they have five or maybe three, like ten win seasons or nine win seasons. Their entire say the program qu- history. The quote that Spurrier had last year. Um, with no, it's, I, it's what I brought up like like last year on the pod, and I caught so much like blank for it on, on Twitter from like Florida fans that like lost their minds because because this was a, it's an odd program because it, it used to be everyone's homecoming. Like it was, they were not a great program, and when he got there, it turned around like very quick. They won the SEC his first year. The quote that Spurrier had at um, the Saturdays in the South screening that we saw where he did the panel mm-hmm. Q&A, where Laura, Rut- yeah, Laura Rutledge said, oh, you brought Swagger back to Florida. And then Spurrier stopped her. He's like, I brought Swagger to Florida. What right. are you talking about? Yeah, they, I mean, they were, it, it, like, it, he, you can't really, it's it just, if you didn't grow up around it, it's it's hard to even imagine that. Because, like, even for me, like, I'm 33, they've been good for most of my life, but, like, 
literally the entire program before that. It was it was almost like if they're gonna hate this comp, but like almost like if Mississippi State or or Ole Miss, like they had like some, you know, like flash the pan, like years of success, like like every fifteen years. And that was it. And then all of a sudden, they were just dominant, just like, absolutely dominant. So I, I think that he—I remember hearing stuff like him getting kind of fed up with like, like the expectations from the fans kind of got out of out of control pretty yep. early on. Um, but also, <clears throat> I think that uh, his thing, like, like I don't think he was intimidated by Tennessee at all. I don't think he's intimidated by anybody. But it was really interesting if he like, when he did leave because you look at when Tennessee won the national championship. It's the year after Peyton left. The following year. They ended up. They didn't make the SEC championship game, but they won ten games. They went to the Fiesta Bowl in ninety nine, two thousand. They should have beat Florida, and I think they also went to um, a BCS Bowl that year. Tennessee was very, very close to having like a mini dynasty from mm-hmm. this stretch, where they could have won, you know, at least played for two to three national championships. Yeah, easily could have. And so Spurrier, um, Doring was actually one of the few Gators he said who wanted, who actually wanted Spurrier to go to the NFL because he was in between NFL jobs and he's thinking, oh, oh Spurrier yeah. comes to the NFL, I'm gonna get, a, I'm for sure gonna get a job. And sure enough, Spurrier goes to the NFL and he brings, he brings a CD to to the Redskins. So the next year, in 2002, this was a great little nugget that CD dropped. He said that um, when they had Ron Zook take over, Jesus. Rex Rex and Taylor Jacobs used to audible to Old Spurrier Place without Zook even knowing. They would just audible to it, like without the permission of the OC or anything like that. They would just they would just do it because that was what they felt comfortable running. Probably a better move. Yeah. Speaking of Rex. CD remembered Rex being the first guy to kind of be busted for the uh, the camera phone era that began in the 21st Drugs. century. Yeah, there was like a photo that leaked out. I think it was like it might have been cocaine or it was it was some it was you cocaine. Know, hey, yeah, there was there's a, a, a photo that that wasn't very flattering. Google Rex Grossman photos and it's just it is a litany of awful. Um, Rex liked to party. That was no secret yeah. whatsoever, and and so CD he was like knew Jay that. Jake Cutler's evil twin. Like a little bit. Like a a clean bit. shaven. Uh, what do you call it? Um, whatever. I just forgot his name. <laughs> uh, but he would. You know, Rex wasn't a playbook guy, but he he knew everything, and he would just show up to practice and just dominate. Mm. And it just like that was kind of the way that he operated, and it was just get me out of bed. It was, I mean, a little bit of a Dennis Rodman type thing. Um, nobody would nobody would make that comp necessarily, but right. he, just just get him to practice and watch that guy work, and then you know, sure enough, he would be able to to do just that. So Neil Blackman, who does great work for us, writing a lot of Florida stuff, he was at this game. He went to this game with a flu. Rex was actually his neighbor. Um, he was miserable, but he didn't want to miss this game. He remembered Florida fans being so confident that Tennessee wasn't going to win that day, and that you know, even though Ernest Graham was going to be out. Florida hadn't trailed at home, as Neil reminded me, all year until all. Tennessee scored that first touchdown right. in that game. Four home losses in the last 11 years that we would brought up. And he remembered people being like, hey, you know, we're going to face Miami in the national championship. We're going to yeah. go to the Rose Bowl. We're going to face this all-time great Miami team. It's going to be a great event. And Neil, as he said, you know, remembers looking around at the stadium and seeing people just crying like Florida fans devastated to lose this game and when they don't get the two-point conversion at the end and realizing that holy crap this is all this is all going away and Neil said it was as crushed as I've ever been from a sporting event and I'm a Braves fan that says it all that I mean and again it was and I don't think the the all-time Miami team was even 
as as much of a thought because this was it seemed like maybe an all time Florida team like this was like a, yeah would have been an awesome matchup of like I wrote down the stats like Miami led the country or was a one or two in the country and scoring defense passing defense like interceptions like they, it would have been an awesome matchup to watch it really would but been. you know like the the thing I, I tried to say earlier but they'd won eight out of the last ten you just kept expecting them like all right when are they gonna turn it on because even even it being a close game isn't cause for concern. They four of the last five going into this game in the series were decided by six or less points, and they were all won by Florida. Didn't matter. Yeah, and uh, I talked to Michael Bratton as well, who you know he's a Tennessee grad, and he he remembered obviously like immediately how unstoppable Stevens was that day, and he had the great Casey Casey Clawson stat. He he said that Casey Clawson actually had the most SEC road wins ever, and that might have just been at the time, but he was fourteen and one. On the road during his it. career, I hate that I would believe it, but I would believe it. He, he'd always get those little bootlegs. That was that was what he did. Um, but he he was he was good enough to win this game. What were you gonna say? So the bootleg comment, like like talking about like like where the mo- like game was like lost or whatever. Th- this one play, yeah, was let's, like let's look into one. So I, I honestly, as much as I hate Casey Clawson, I got so increasingly frustrated watching Rex Grossman, and I, I, he he did this like like a, multiple times like in big games. Like the Auburn loss, he threw four interceptions. Um, there just there was just different times where he seemed like he was too overconfident or too comfortable, where he wasn't like going through the right like reads or progressions. And he, was he wasn't just managing like being, the game; he was just doing what he wanted to do. Right, he was just being he was being kind of lazy about it. So in, in this game in particular, they had something ridiculous. Like in the third quarter, twenty eight uh, like quarterback pressures Tennessee did, which is outrageous. Um, but but there was like. You know, he just constantly made mistakes, especially when it was, like, later in the game, like on third and one, fourth and one. They had, like, a, a bunch of pre-snap penalties that I still, like, raised my blood pressure on, even though I'm not a Florida fan. But there was a play on fourth and one uh, where Clawson rolled out to his left. It was like a, it was like a bootleg, and they were just designed pass, and the pass wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And there was not a lot of room to run, but there was, like, three yards available, and it was fourth and one. So what Casey Clawson did was just awkwardly run – with his like, I think his knees hit each other when he was running. It's <laughs> so unathletic. awkward. But he like he just Crazy ran legs. and did this like terrible, terrible dive. Like like it wasn't on purpose, but it was, and, and got the first down. Like that that kind of stuff is what won the game. Like that's all he had to do. Watching that too, isn't it so weird watching these games back before we did the yellow line for the first down? And you're like, wait, why is he diving? I had to be reminded how, of that constantly. How, how do we do that? Was the quality of the TV? It was I so bad. Like it's CBS, SEC, it's HD. Like this HD sucked. <laughs> it's terrible. Um, I thought the, the the key moment in that game where Tennessee is up one, ten minutes left, they're deep in their own territory, and Travis Stevens rips off that sixty-eight yard run, and you can just. Was it 69? Oh, nice. 69, yeah. Um, and you could just hear the swamp just go like, oh, crap. This might not be our day. He ran over Gus Scott on that play, too. Just blew him up. Got the balls into the red zone. They uh, were able to, to punch it in and score. The The rushing advantage of this game was just so lopsided. 251 to, t- to 21 it was at right. that point, despite the fact that, like we said, Florida, number six in the <clears> country <throat> against the run. Tennessee just flat out dominated this game yeah. in the trenches. They they absolutely did, and nobody really kind of thought that was going to happen. But that's one of those things where if if that's because I always think that if you're going to win in the trenches, you have to have a little bit of extra juice. You got to have a little bit of something in the back of your mind that's just making you go, "We want this more than you do." And the big underdog thing, if that played into it, 
Yeah. That wouldn't be incredibly surprising. Or having a D tackle that was okay with stomping on people's faces. Whatever. I mean, either way. Um, no, I, I, you know what's weird too is they brought up the stat where in that series, like before this game, ten of the like previous eleven years, whoever had like the least amount of turnovers and, and most rushing yards, it was like they had won, but it was like a staggering difference. It was like you know, like the losing team had an average of seventy five rushing yards and three turnovers. Mm-hmm. The winning team had an average of like one hundred and fifty yep. something. Um, but when you think of like a Philip Fulmer team, and as much as like I, I dog on him and, and didn't like him, you know, as like a as a rival. He was a great coach, and all of his teams were just like this. Like they were very solid in the trenches. They were they were like very tough and gritty, like hard nosed. I never thought about that with with Spurrier. And it, like even hearing they had like the sixth best rush defense in the country, it was like I, I it it almost felt like maybe because I knew the outcome, but like that was like more of like a facade or like kind of like a paper champion type thing because it was not it, they didn't look as good as as Tennessee. And Florida's offensive line got dominated in this game. They yeah. kept showing the pressure stats with Grossman and it was at one point 28 pressures on Rex Grossman. Like how, how is that possible? Hey, you know, and was you know, one thing about the Grossman uh as like the game went on, I think Blackledge kind of came out of this, but you brought up the play where he like I think you even said it was like something like it's like it's an incredible play where he's like, you know, stumbling and throws it underhand. When he threw that, I was like, I, I said out loud last night at 1.30 in the morning watching, I go, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> it was so bad. And, he had and so many Todd, plays like that. So many. And, and Todd Blackledge goes, "That's you know what? That's just instincts. That's just that's just pure instincts. And it was like, Todd, you're an idiot. Like, that is not that is not the word for that. There were two other plays in that game where they should have been fumbles. They yes. should have absolutely been fumbles. And without the aid of replay, there was nothing that could overturn it. But it... You're just like Rex. Rex has like a 320 defensive, 300 pound t- like defensive tackle taking him to the ground, and he's trying to throw it over their helmet at several what? times. I don't know, but there were he several turned his back instances. to one of them at one yeah. point and like threw like a, a t- like. I tell you what, y'all think Bama gets all the calls? Florida got all the calls in Ooh, this game. Yes, there was it, he. There was like again, if you go back and watch the game, take like you know keep a tally because it was. Not exaggerating, it was a minimum three times where he was being dragged to the ground and still trying to throw a ball, like, to where no one was open. It was really alarming to watch that. And as a fan, I can't imagine being a Florida fan watching that and, like, knowing that that is what you have pinned your all your hopes on. Let's say that Florida had gotten a, a pass interference call on that two-point conversion. I'm not saying there was pass interference on the play. I don't think there yeah. was. I don't think there was. But let's say they had gotten a pass interference call on that game. They get another chance to run the two-point conversion, and Florida ultimately wins this game in overtime. The what would have happened afterwards if the result Wait, was Wait, did we do the blow-it part? Yeah, mine was the, the, the Travis Stevens 68-yard run that Florida allowed. I thought you just did this. You, yeah, you just did this because we, we went into that um, with the... Uh, uh, yeah, I, I just thought- made a point that Clawson had a good play. I thought that was the the fourth and one that he that he converted. I have several uh, reasons why they blew it. And Fire I, away! I'm heated, so I want I want to say him. Um, okay, so I, I thought this was gonna be like the only one, and then it just kept going, and it took up so much of my entire page of notes. So fourth and one. There's a minute nine left in the third quarter on the Tennessee forty. Florida's up twenty three twenty one. Florida's up in this game twenty three twenty one. They, they didn't deserve to be. They, they threw away several opportunities in the first half, had to like sell for field goals because of like bad plays from Grossman. Um, they get a false start, which I'm not even a Florida fan. This game happened 20 years ago. Still makes me so mad. So it makes it fourth and six. They go for it for some reason, and Grossman gets sacked. And, and, and that was a play, too, mm-hmm. where that was one of, the, like one of the times where he's being dragged to the ground and still tries to throw it, and it should have been a fumble. 
and nothing came up because Tennessee got the ball back. Tennessee goes right down the field, scores, um, and takes a lead like in the next like three plays. Travis Stevens breaks off like a long run or whatever. So then like it blew my mind because it was like you have the lead, you're on their forty, just punt them deep. Like 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 are you that worried about Casey Clawson? Like just punt them deep because you have a good defense. And now instead, you find yourself at the start of the fourth quarter. They had not been trailing in a fourth quarter the entire season. Even when they lost to Auburn, that was on a last-second field goal. Mm-hmm. So they hadn't trailed at all uh, this late in the season. It's the last game of the year. So, like, you know, that brings a lot of added pressure because all of a sudden now it's the fourth quarter and you're, and you're down. Um, the next possession, that was when Clawson had the uh, the fourth and one, which I thought was, like, just a, a perfect example of, like, what to do and what not to do. Um, Stevens, uh, he rips off a 34-yard run. They hadn't trailed in the game all season, like I said. So you, they take it to a second. Damn it, what is this? Oh, so they get the ball back, and it's like still like seven and a half minutes left, or maybe t- there's ten minutes left in the fourth quarter. Grossman on third and fifteen calls a timeout. Weird. And it's their, it's Weird their second play. timeout, and it was like, it's third and fifteen. Like, it, like this is a great offense, but I don't think this is something you like necessarily have a great play call for. Yeah. They come back, and it was just like a standard like post. That he threw in between two defenders, incomplete. So they have to end up like punting. Um, UF didn't want they they at no point wanted to tackle uh, Travis Stevens. So they get down, I think like eight. Inexplicably, Philip Fulmer goes for two. Oh what? yeah, going for two. I forgot about that. That I mean, Tennessee didn't blow it necessarily from that. No, they- they could have. They could have. They absolutely could have. Blackledge said, I just don't get this at all. Why are, why are they going yeah. for two to, in, in this instance to, to, throw, to go from a four-point lead to a six-point lead? I don't know what the chart would say about that now. I think the chart if would say that was the goal, They would have went up by three at the end of the game, and that, that two-point conversion wouldn't have mattered at all. Exactly. So anyway, so then like the, the last part, and, and this is like you could just start to see Grossman. He wasn't like he was a good player. He was not a leader, I, I don't think, especially in this game where he was just constantly making mistakes. And and to be fair, he was like beaten to a pulp. Like he most wasn't. Of the game. He wasn't voted team MVP, and he was the Heisman runner-up as a quarterback. That's a good point. Yeah. Um. So he it's there's seven and a half minutes left in the fourth quarter. It's third and one, and I think they're like, they're like around midfield. Third and one, they go under center. Um. They had like they had several third and ones like prior to this, and they they ran the ball right up the middle. Every single time. Mm-hmm. And in the second half, they started having a little bit more luck on some plays, I guess, at least running. Like, it wasn't that bad. They they threw a quick slant to to Gaffney, and it wasn't even close. So then it's fourth and one. They decided to go for it. Pre-snap penalty, again, makes it fourth and six. Spurrier's and... look after that play was just priceless. Yeah. I mean, there, there were key instances in which Florida could have turned the tide in that game and just... Ruined uh, so many yeah. opportunities. I mean, there there were opportunities sitting there for him, and not just the the two point conversion at the end. Let's say though, just hypothetically speaking, yeah. that Florida does win this game. Florida goes on to the SEC championship the following weekend to play LSU. Here's the interesting thing about all of this. So we were still a month away from Spurrier resigning. We didn't know necessarily about about the Redskins. What if we had known at the time, and Spurrier made this big deal, and I guess this isn't necessarily what if the result were flipped, but maybe could have, could this have flipped the result? If Spurrier told his team and told it's everybody, like yeah, like told everybody, look, this is it. I'm, I'm leaving at the end of the year. He wouldn't do that because it would hurt. It would essentially ruin your recruiting for for like two months during a very key stretch there. But if he had just come out and told his team. 
this is it. I, I, tell them in the locker room before the game, leave it yeah. all out there. Let's go win us a national championship. The road to that starts right here. Does his team come out a little bit different because they were beat in the trenches in this game? Florida was not the more motivated team. It looked like Tennessee wanted it more throughout. Oh, without a doubt. Well, and if you've, you know, like I think that's like the nature of, of being the underdog and you've lost, you know, eight of the last 10. And I think that was, uh, it was always, you could say like how much more satisfying it was for Tennessee to win games like this as mm-hmm. opposed to Florida because, you know, it, it was a big hump for them to get over. So, like, yeah, I don't, if he would have like just pulled like a super dramatic card and just been right before the game, like, I'm leaving if you guys don't win. Or like they sending me to Vietnam. Or not, not, not if you don't win, but I'm, I'm leaving at yeah. the end of the year because that, yeah. that's been done before. I mean, Buddy Ryan did that back when you know the Bears were playing in the Super Bowl, and he told his team before oh, this the game. Is a Bears podcast. <laughs> told his team before that Super Bowl, and they played like this is the last game for our coach. And yeah. that, you know that type of stuff can sometimes matter. Different times, obviously, if that stuff ever leaks, then that's not necessarily yeah. the best. I look, think it, it could have made a difference, but it's like a, a huge hypothetical. There, um, I, I think though, if they did win, like there's a seven the second quarter where they had so many missed opportunities on, on just bad passes, from and they Grossman. were outscored them twenty to nothing in the second quarter. And right, they still but they, well, it there. should have been worse. Yeah. Like they left a lot of points on the board, and it, like again, that's where I kept saying like it seems arrogant. Like they just were never, they, they were never phased, which is usually a good thing. But like they just never seemed like they had like a sense of urgency at all. Yeah, and and so at, if they would have won, I think what's interesting about it is they play LSU, um. Like I, you know, LSU knocked off Tennessee. It was a huge upset. Big time. I don't know if that happens with Florida because it's hard to beat a team twice. I think like Florida had played in the SEC championship game in '99 against a team they had already played once, and and it, you know, it, like it's hard to beat a team twice. But they had already beat them by 29 points in so, Death Valley. So that that's and and I know that one of the things to this is would Florida have given Miami a better game than Nebraska? Possibly, yes. but I still think Miami was an all-time team, and I think that was that was ultimately Miami's national championship to win. Interesting point that Neil brought up. So this game afterwards, where LSU is able to 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 beat Tennessee, all of a sudden there's this opening with Spurrier gone. Yeah, and it kind of was the beginning of Saban's rise in the SEC, where now. With Spurrier out of the conference, there is a new place. And Fulmer is obviously still one of the best coaches in the country. It was his to take. It was his to take, though. And there was this opening. And Saban seizes it because he beats Tennessee in this upset to spoil Tennessee's sudden national championship hopes, which were apparently still out there. That LSU team won four straight games against ranked teams during that stretch. And LSU recruiting, as Neil brought up, really, really got rolling kind of after this. And then they win the national championship two years later. If Spurrier stays, like let's say they win this game, he doesn't see this this fatigue necessarily about, you know, losing in the SEC and 12 years in the SEC at a program is is, is enough time. Does Saban ever break through in the same exact way? I don't know. I really don't it's, know. I mean, it's hard to say because Saban – He's like you know the greatest college football coach of all time, so it, it would it would be hard to say. But what people always forget about this, and I'll be the first to remind you, is LSU had a losing record in eight of the eleven seasons before Saban yep. got there, and what he was able to like to build there is is all of the foundation of what they they've become. Uh, like that, I mean, you know, Coach O doesn't owe his success to Saban, but Les Miles definitely did. In 2007, <laughs> um, but no. So I mean, like it's it would be interesting because it, it is it's odd because you, like you said, like it's like the throne is is open, 
Mark Richt was putting together some really good teams. That 2002 team, that that was a 12-win team that mm-hmm. wins, or actually might have been 13 wins, that went to the Sugar Bowl. Um, you know, like, I think they, them 2002 to 2004 is when they had David Green, and they were, they were in the top five nationally, it seemed like, every year. And it, it's just, it's odd because you look at Tennessee's recruiting, like I said, it was, their three straight recruiting classes from 99 to 2001 were one, one, and, and two in the country. And they just stockpiled with talent. And it's, I don't want to say it's a huge missed opportunity because I don't think anybody has beaten Miami. But it, it does do a lot more for your program if you are making it to another national championship, mm-hmm. especially without the, the Peyton thing. People forget how big of a, um, it, not an obstacle, but like the thing with Peyton, nobody thought Tennessee was going to be anything after he left. Yep. They went and Natty like the, the the year after. He had Dennis Franchione uh, at at Bama. You had Tommy Tuberville at Ole Miss. Houston Nutt was starting to come in there. I I, I think that if say it's Spurrier stayed, I still say Florida's probably the best team in in the SEC. But those games with Saban, like there's probably a different narrative. Like Saban probably leaves for Miami a little bit earlier if he can. I think it might have altered Saban's path. I I, mm-hmm. I truly do and. You know the the rise that he that he had. He became, of course, what we consider now to be many consider to be the greatest coach of all time, or the second oh, yeah, greatest coach of all time, yeah. depending on you know if you want to bang the Bear Bryant drum. But yeah, what what would his career have looked like, and what would have would he have decided to go to the NFL? Where there would that curiosity have been there? Who knows? Or come back. Or come back. Like, there's all these different things if Saban doesn't get LSU to this level with Spurrier opening the door. The last thing here, last category that we'll close with, the play or image that we'll always remember when thinking of this game. You go first. It's just uh, Fulmer's dumbass little smile at the end. It just just rubs me the wrong way. Um, got the Gatorade bath so and everything. Grossman, Grossman constantly adjusting himself in his helmet and his jersey. And his big pads. jersey, big, big. Gets, the shoulder yeah. pads always had. He always had that where he would tuck them in, or the sleeves were way, way, way too big. He even did that yeah. in the NFL, where you're just like, just get smaller shoulder like pads tee. on your jersey. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. I mean, Gaffney, like he wore like the the Michael Thomas or not Michael Thomas, Michael Bennett uh, shoulder pads, but but it just him constantly getting beat up, like like he was. Tennessee did stuff on defense that they had never done against against Florida, and it showed. Like they just brought like all these, you know, not exotic blitzes, but pressure just nonstop. Um, and the other thing was, and, and I remember this uh, more than anything was Jabbar Gaffney in the end zone. I didn't think he was that far away from the pass, and I, I thought he was like when I first saw it, like the play happened in real time. I thought he was going to catch it because it seemed like he had broken free, and and like the ball's like heading pretty close to his general direction, and then it. He didn't like put his hands up at all. I guess I guess probably out of reach. And him turning around to the ref immediately, looking for a flag and pulling yeah. on his jersey. The year after, they got away with mm. one on his touchdown. That's I'll I'll never forget that. That's a that's a good lasting image. I know this was Tennessee's day. It was Tennessee's great moment. But looking back, I, rain on it. Spurrier without his visor, looking super stressed is something that I'll always picture with this game. And Spurrier has this thing where he's always wiping his forehead. Always, 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 yeah. always for whatever reason. Confused frustration. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is his thing. And it, without the visor, it's just that much more noticeable. Because if you're playing with a visor, you don't maybe see somebody's hair all messed up or something like that. But it reminded me, I actually watched the 95 Fiesta Bowl um, against oh, Nebraska. God 
when uh, when Spurrier just got, I mean, that Florida team got trucked 16-24. And I watched it in a Nebraska bar in Lincoln about seven years ago, of course, because that's what you do. They were re-showing oh, it? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yes. That is, that is a common occurrence that's in so Lincoln. so Texas. Uh, that is a very common occurrence in Lincoln to rewatch old Husker National Championship games. Let me tell you Yikes. about that. And in that game, Spurrier's just always wiping his forehead. And I think he went to the visor after that, if I'm not mistaken. But maybe he it was like, you know, night games. He wasn't using the visor or what his role was necessarily. But he looks very, very naked without the visor. And I, I, yeah. can't, I can't shake that feeling. I feel like whenever I see him without the visor, he loses. You Wait. know what's weird, too, is they interviewed him after the game. Yeah, they did. Not Fulmer. Well, Fulmer was getting the Gatorade bath. And they had and one question big, for so that's Spurrier. A, that's a lot of that's a lot of Gatorade. Yeah, and that's another image that obviously needs to be brought up is him getting the Gatorade bath, and you could tell it, it's the monkey off the back. Like getting that win in the swamp for him meant something different. Thirty and years. Thirty years is a long time. It's a long time. People don't forget that. I just I just that he had that six flags body where it's like a front butt. Just <laughs> they call it a fupa. Yeah, they it just it just looks like just nothing but khaki and denim chafing. Yeah, I'm not going to tell you what FUPA stands for. We'll save that I, for another I time. Know it is. Yeah. <laughs> that was fun. That was really good. Yeah. I hope I hope both Florida and Tennessee fans enjoyed this. This is great for us to rewatch this game. Like I said, if you have not watched this game, go back and do it. It's on YouTube. It's great. It's awesome. Yeah. You feel the electricity and this game was just a little bit different. I mean, it's cliche. It just meant more, but because this game was being played in December and the stakes of this being essentially a quarterfinal game for the playoff, it, it did have a, a different sort of feel to the Tennessee-Florida rivalry, which, you know, hopefully is going to be getting better now that Tennessee, uh, we've said yeah, that before. Yeah, that, that is something I hate when people say, like, oh, you know, college is better when this is... Yeah, I'm good. not like, that person. I'm not. But I, I do think, I, I do miss this being, like, a, a fun a fun rivalry. Um, I was trying to think. I don't know what game we're going to do next. Uh, random thought real quick. I have totally forgot 2001 that South Carolina was good. They were ranked in the top 15, both, like, when they played Florida and... Uh, what do you call it? Florida and Tennessee. But um, which brings me to my next point. What is the next game we should do? That's a good question. That's a really, really good question. Maybe we leave a little bit up to up to a certain vote uh, in our SDS podcast Facebook group, which you should totally go follow uh, if you have not done so yet. But what if the- we do a deep dive into a like a just a random Tuesday morning uh, fourth quarter program workout with Scott Cochran? from like 11 years ago. Let's do it. That'd be a lot of fun. Really Let's, good. Um, no, I think that the, the issue though with, and not to say that I don't want in, input from everybody. I do. I absolutely do. But if you were a fan of a specific team, you would want to watch a, a, mm-hmm. a historic game with your fan base. And then it leads it a little bit up to a popularity contest. So we do want to be able to talk to to all of our listeners about which game we should do next. We have a few that are in the holster. Um, kind of TBD. We've done over half the SEC teams now for have we done Ole Miss? at least one game. We have not done Ole Miss, and I thought about, I don't know if this is old enough, the Katy Perry Corn Dog game. It's the Alabama loss. You just say the I Alabama know, loss. I know. I wanted um, to preface it that way instead of calling it an Alabama loss. Yeah, well, just don't, bring, don't bring up Katy Perry. She's an angel. Uh, I was thinking instead the the Arkansas one from the same year. No, 2015. The oh, with the lateral? 2025, yeah. Ooh. Or... Um, or the uh, the Auburn game, which was I, like that was crazy because that was it came down to the wire and and both teams I think were in the top five and both teams were still like in contention for the national championship. Ooh. We might we're, I think we're 
I think we're leaning towards an Auburn game for our next one. Potentially, <laughs> potentially Ronnie and Cadillac. That could be another one of that one of those games from 2004. I know that team didn't necessarily make a national championship, but that that LSU game. That LSU game was fun, though. I, I had to go back and rewatch that for the Goat Week series that we did. Over um, your Big Ten crap. All this, all the Chicago Bears references, and now you want to watch a 10-9 football game? We are going to do a 2-0 game before. That is, I will not do that. That was a nightmare. <laughs> I cannot believe so that, that a, game actually happened. In other words, TBD uh, as to when we're going to do our next game. Maybe we'll do, we're, we're hoping to do about one a month of, of these. They do take a lot of time, though. I mean, I, I spent probably like six, seven hours putting all of this, a lot of these, these things together. Three. Yeah, we, uh, we definitely um, put in our fair share of work to be able to do this. But I'm glad we, we got to do this. Now we're back on track doing it. just meant more. And hopefully we'll, we'll crank out a, a bunch of these in the future as well. So, Fulmer, Spurrier, HBC, uh, Rashad Caldwell, crazy eye Rashad Caldwell. Um, what, do we need to, what do we need to remember? Now listen up, man. Now li- listen up, man. That's that's my best Philip Fulmer. It, me, it just, oh, dang it, it just meant more. <laughs> <laughs>